Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker. Worker of yours. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns and Foster, Temper Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60 month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. You guys want to talk about a Rorschach test? That would be the Cavs game last night. And uh, on the way home, I, uh, I stopped at a local eatery there in Bainbridge just off 422. Shout out to Adam and, uh, and Drew for being very kind to me. They introduced me to the people at their, uh, their eatery as a, a celebrity, at which point I really felt bad for the people who thought I might actually be a celebrity. It was very funny. I was like, oh, please. I just talked mess on the radio. But they were very nice. And I was sitting there. And I was watching the Cavs game, and I sent out what honestly is the perfect tweet about the Cavaliers, because speaking of Rorschach tests, this this absolutely, you could read this differently in any five-minute stretch of the game, because the Cavs had just been on a really nice run. Donovan had a beautiful three-pointer. I think at that point, they were up like 12 or 13. It was like halfway through the second quarter, and it was beautiful. And so I got my food. I'm going home, listening to the game on the radio. All of a sudden, the game's really close out of nowhere. And But what I tweeted out was, I remember these Cavaliers. And I wish, I really wish that I could have like a time, a timeline breakdown of when people like that. Because a fair amount of the people like that tweet because they're like, oh yeah, the Cavs are playing really well and looks like the, 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 the flow's going really well. And then if you, if it was 10 minutes later, people were probably thinking I was tweeting that out bleeping all over the Cavs because inexplicably the second half became very dicey. The game got super close. The Cavs had a chance to put it away with about uh, with a few minutes left. They declined to do so. The Mavericks had, uh, with five minutes left, they had a nice lead there as well. The Cavs got back into it. And then to kind of just put the whole thing in perspective, the Cavs inbounds play was disastrous, a theme with J.B. Bickerstaff. The, the ball was turned over. Um, they, they got it into the low post, and all of a sudden, Dallas now has a one-point lead with 2.6 seconds or 2.4 seconds left. And like so many of you, I was I was watching most of this game. At points, in, as intently as I've watched the Cavs game, and at other points, I'd be like, oh, brother, here we go again. Here's another bad Darius possession, which we'll get to. Here's another oopsie-daisy, what-the-hell-are-we-doing-here kind of thing. 
And then, inexplicably, when when Dallas scores with 2.4 seconds, like everybody else, I was thinking, well, you know what? It's really not that bad of a loss. Only to watch, because the, the Cavaliers had no timeouts, and just, just so J.B. Bickerstaff knows, you probably should have a few timeouts at the end of the game. You, should, you probably you maybe conserve your second half. The, the, the first half timeouts don't really bug me as much, but, you know, if there's a chance at, like, an inbounds play that – you know, maybe the other team scores. Maybe maybe just give yourself an opportunity to call timeouts so you don't have to do what the Cavs did, which is they inbounded the pass to Donovan Mitchell. He flips it back to Max Struess, and Max Struess hits, uh, I would say a miracle, but apparently it's his second longest game-winning three-pointer ever. But he, he hit an absolute miracle of a, of a 60-foot shot to win the game for the Cavaliers. And it's funny because that tweet that I sent out was a Rorschach test. Depending on when you watch, were watching the Cavs, depending on how you felt, I saw a lot of sky is falling tweets with five minutes to go in the game and the, when the Mavs had a slight lead or whether the Cavs, whether it was at the end of the game, how, whenever it was, it really was tied into how you were feeling about the Cavs emotionally in that moment. Same thing with last night's game because Keith and I got into it, not got into it, we got into a debate before the, the show about how we saw that game. And listen, I think there's a lot of validity to, man, that was a lot of bad possessions in late in that game. The offense kind of fell apart. Um, however you let them score on an inbounds play with the turnover with, uh, you know, five seconds left was really, truly embarrassing. There's a lot of different ways to look at that and and come away feeling like, man, that's just another sloppy game that the Cavaliers have played since – uh, the All-Star break and since shortly before the All-Star break. I would also say, I, I, and by the way, part of that is, I got bailed out by Max Struess. I would also say, like, guys, Dallas is a really good team. And Kyrie, and when I say really good, I mean, they they had just snapped a seven-game winning streak before uh, going into last night. Um, Kyrie and Luka are actually playing pretty well together. And even though the, their standings in the East or the, the West don't look all that impressive, this thing's actually kind of humming in Dallas. So you've got a team that is playing good basketball together. There were some quality moments there where it looked like either Luka or Kyrie was going to steal the game from you. So I kind of took it, and my my view on it was, yeah, you were that's a lucky three point shot, but I I think that's the kind of like that's a kind of seesaw of a game that when you win, um, damn the details, like you needed that kind of win. And if, if the Cavs had lost that game at home last night, it would have been an incredibly deflating loss coming off what felt like a deflating win against Washington. And there's still reasons to kind of look at the Cavs and, and, and have that bombastic side eye when we talk about where the Cavs are. But I actually thought last night was a good win. And I think we get into this thing where I think with the Cavs, and I am guilty of it as everybody, but I think we get to a point where unless they win by 15 points comfortably, no matter who the opponent is, no matter whether they're on the road or on the, uh, at home, because they've, they've, because the ship has been a little wonky these last couple of weeks, everything, every single game, we're, it's paralysis by overanalysis. And I think that's, I've heard a lot of that with the Cavs game. And, and that doesn't mean that there aren't concerning things out of last night's game. But you beat a good team at home, you overcame kind of a boneheaded last-second play in terms of just turning the ball over on an inbounds there. Um, yes, you did avoid disaster, but like that, to me, is the kind of shot that is a kind of moment 
that can lift a team because all of a sudden it does take pressure off Darius. All of a sudden it does take pressure off Donovan Mitchell, who seems to be a little tired right now, as we saw late in that game. And so if I don't necessarily believe in – if you listen, if you think – this is a better way to put this because I almost did my uh, my double negative into this. The better way to look at this from my standpoint is if you think it was going to be a disastrous loss, if they had a deflating loss, if they were going to lose last night, then winning that way, no matter if it's flukish or not, I do think has some real power to it. And it's funny, I heard, you know, I've heard everybody start to compare it. When when Max Drews hit that shot, guys, you know, my first thought was it was Kyrie on Christmas Day against Golden State. And the stakes are different. Um, there, there was that burgeoning rivalry. There was the seesaw between those two teams. Um, you needed that win, that Golden State win, that Kyrie Irving shot. So I, I don't even like, but... But Max Drews, that shot last night, I think can be an incredibly crucial moment for the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't know that it will be, but if the Cavaliers start to kind of put together and they've got, you know, Chicago on the road, second half of back-to-back tonight, they've got Detroit on Friday on the road, then it's, I think it's Monday, either Sunday or, yeah, Sunday, Tuesday, I think it's Knicks and Celtics at home. So the next two games you should win because the Bulls aren't that good and uh, the Detroit Pistons are a dumpster fire. So I'm kind of looking to see them kind of put a couple wins together because I know the Knicks have been banged up. I know the Knicks have not been one of the hotter teams in the NBA, but that's a crucial win you need this weekend. The Celtics game's a nice to have, not a need to have, but like this is sneakily a very important stretch for the Cavs. But it and, and just to get back real quick to the idea of, I'm going to compare the Max Struess shot. Um, doesn't it kind of lose its luster when we do that in sports? Because, like, here's the thing. Guys, in no way can it be a more important shot than Kyrie against the Warriors on Christmas Day. That game had massive national appeal. That game had historical significance. That game had the significance in that moment when he hits that shot. It can't top that because that was part of one of the great rivalries in NBA history Cavs versus Warriors. That's a part. It might it, it's not a huge part, but it is absolutely a part of one of the most important runs in Cavs history. We're still with this team at TBD. So, if all of a sudden 3 weeks from now we look up and the Cavs have put together another, you know, 6 of 7 or 7 of 8. Yeah, I think we're going to look back on this and talk about the importance of it. If the Cavs really catch fire coming off this game and you see them, you know, lock down the two seed and all of a sudden that feeds into a great run in the playoffs, again, I think you can look back at last night's shot and say, that's a really important moment for the Cavaliers. But I kind of hate doing the in-moment, is it the greatest shot ever? I kind of hate it because, one, it can't be compared to the Kyrie thing because of the gravity of the Kyrie shot. Two, it is a regular season game. So I can't compare it to Kyrie's shot in the NBA Finals. I can't compare it to other big plays we've seen in either the Finals or even the playoffs. And I don't want to, because it feels like I'm dismissing it. This is the re- basically what I'm saying. Like It is an all-time great shot. When it comes to game-winning shots, damn, I, I like outside of the Kyrie shot, I, I struggle to find anything that was as cool as that just given the end-of-game sequence where both the Mavericks and the Cavs tried their damnedest to lose that game. But 
the Kyrie shot mattered because of what it meant before and after, given the 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 gravity of the ri- the rivalry with Golden State. I gotta see what the Cavs do from here, and I think the arrow is pointed up. I'm I'm pretty certain. I don't want to say certain. I'm pretty sure that that is the kind of win you can kind of pull off and kind of settle steady the 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 ship, but. Most of all, I just want to watch it a hundred times again because it was so much fun, and it turned a game that was very stressful into one of the coolest endings to a Cavaliers game that I can kind of remember there. 216-474-0092, and I'll go back to it. I think it's a quality win by the Cavs. And how I judge that is the Mavericks are a good team. You needed that win because it you stack wins now. You also needed that win because uh, since before the All-Star break, uh, you know, you, even now with the win, you've, you're uh, three and three in your last six games. And I think you could kind of feel the ground moving under the Cavaliers' feet. You can, if you're the Cavs, you can go, yeah, we beat Washington, but that team sucks. It was on the road, whatever. I think if you're the Cavs, you can really build off what was a really fun and exciting win against a team with two premier players in the NBA. When you look at last night's win, I think we can start with the idea of whether you think that was a quality win for the Cavaliers or not. And I think to all the people that have said, well, but Darius, to all that, well, but, you know, you could have lost that game three ways. Yeah, that's called a close game in the NBA. I think that's just like, you're not going to win all of them, and certainly against a team with Luka and Kyrie, you're not going to look at all of those wins as 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 quality wins if if your definition is, well, you almost lost the game. Yeah, that's a competitive second half of the game. Like, yeah, there's some sloppy stuff. There's some real stuff to be concerned with. But, like, yeah, you should have lost that game, and you didn't. I I think that's a feather in the cap for the the Cleveland Cavaliers. The second that Dallas scored, I was like, you know what? It was good. It's a good game. Can't be too mad. I was doing the – I was coping, basically. I was coping with the thought of, like, all right, this is a really deflating loss. How the hell do you come back from this? But the fact that Struess hit it – um, and by the way, Struce himself said he knew he was going to make the game-winning shot. Okay. No, you didn't. No. I No. Just no. I just no. No, I don't buy it. All right. I love, I love the, I love any time you can maybe sell a fight after the fact because it sounds cool of like, of course I knew it was going to go in. I'm not a chance. Here's Max. So that was good from the time you let it go? I did. Did you? Yeah, it felt good. The last five of them felt pretty good. <laughs> so in fairness... Good shots do feel different leaving your hand. There, I buy the confidence of, oh, I'm pretty sure, but I buy the confidence when it's a 24-foot shot. I buy the confidence when it's a 20-foot shot. Very few times have I ever uncorked, and I'm, I, now I'm talking about my athletic pursuits and comparing it to Max Struess, a little different there. But uh, yes, I, I think that's, that's a good way to pump fans up. And here's the thing, I am happy for Max Struess. Because Max has been a nice player for them. He has been probably better all around as a player, but like he's a role player. You, you watch him play, he's not a guy that should be one of your, I don't even want to say five best. He's not going to be one of your four best players. So he is a role player, and it's a little different than, than JR, but I kind of think of it like JR. Like JR, once every two weeks, needed to have a game where JR did something swishy. Some some JR moment where you're like, that's why you have that guy there. And so I think Max Struess 
needs to continue to play with that kind of confidence, whether I believe him or not. But I also think, you know, we talked about, is this a good loss or not? Or is this a good win? Sorry. Is it a quality win? I mean, I, I understand the idea of, well, you got to execute down the stretch better, agreed wholeheartedly. And there is the Darius component of this, which we have to get to, which I think is becoming an even bigger conversation. But games like last night, winning those games are how you go from a 50-win team to a 55-win team. They're how you go from uh, a fourth seed to a, to a two seed, if you can consistently churn those out. It could all be for naught. Tonight, if they lose to Chicago, I don't care. It's the second half of back-to-back. You need to beat Chicago. You're the better team. You need this win more than they do because all of a sudden, the teams behind you are starting to play better basketball or they're chomping at the bit to kind of overtake you because you had your three and three, or sorry, your two and three stretch up until last night. But... If you string together, you get Chicago and Detroit, and maybe you take that game on Sunday from New York and you turn this into a five-game winning streak, it's the kind of thing that even if it doesn't look perfect, even if you're still struggling to get the right shots off through most of the game, even if you're still struggling, all right, one, you know, this five, we're going to play super fast. This five-minute stretch, we're going to fall behind. We're not going to be moving the ball, and it's going to it's going to be uncomfortable, and you're going to give up. You're going to go from being up five to being down five. Those things are going to happen until you really get rolling again. But just keep winning. That's where, the, and unlike Dory in, um, in Finding Nemo, are, are very similar to Dory. Instead of just keep swimming with the Cavs, it's just keep winning. Just keep doing that because it buys you patience from fans. It buys you patience internally when a guy like Darius continues to struggle the way that he has. 216-474-0092. You consider last night a quality win. Let's go with Neil. Neil, welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, how are you today? Very. I'm, I'm much better after that Cavs game. I, I Here's a funny thing. I enjoyed watching the Cavs game, but, oh, man, was I tense at the end of it. And when Max Struess hit that, uh, it was a – it was a, it changed my emotional equilibrium last night. How about you? Well, I was cleaning up coffee off my carpeting. I I filled my coffee. I jumped up when he hit, went through the rim. I mean, I was like, "Holy cow!" Are, are we? By the way, we're, are we drinking decaf that late, or are you are you just pumping the the caffeine that late? I just pumped the caffeine that late. I don't have a problem with it. I can go right to sleep. I think that's almost that's as impressive as the sixty the foot game winner. What? I. I, I agree with you that he. There's no way he could cut, knew that shot was going through. I mean, you have two seconds to get that ball in and up the court and to shoot. There's no way you you know you knew it was going through. But I mean, it probably felt really good coming off his hands. But I agree with you that I don't believe he knew it was going in. Neil, real quick, buddy, you think that's a turning point for the Cavaliers? We were talking about this at work today, a guy and I, and I, I said that I go, I think this could be the shot that. You know, in this game that showed us, that, you know, it could be the turning point because we're kind of in a little bit of a mini slump. We're losing games that we shouldn't be losing, and you know, we're a better team than everybody at like Philadelphia. We're we're better than them right now, but I think this game is guy. I'm. We'll see tonight. I guess tonight will be the tell if they come out and like blow out Chicago or beat them by 15. But I think this was something to build. You know, momentum builder. I guess is what I want to say. Neil, appreciate you, buddy. Good luck cleaning that stand out of the carpet, okay? Thank you. Thank you so much. Neil joining us there. Um, so here's the thing. I, I, I want to add on, because I've said I think last night that that kind of win could be the turning point. I also think it has to be. 
I think I think you're to the point of the season where this next little stretch of basketball, I'm not just talking about to the end of the season, but getting back to being the team that you were when you played 18 out of 20 or won 18 out of 20 games, even if we're not talking about winning 900 basketball for the rest of the season, I think turning last night into the turning point, I think it has to be if you want to be the two seed. Uh, Milwaukee's won three straight. The, the Knicks have lost one, but they're only three, no, four games back off the Cavaliers in the second spot here. And if you want to be the two seed, I think this has to be the game that kind of pops you back into that. And then slowly but surely, if you guys remember, like thinking back to when Darius and Evan went out, it wasn't like a, a flip switching moment. All right. It was kind of a slow build over several games of putting it together. Now, one thing I think that, and I'll, I'll get more into this with Danny Cunningham later in the show, one thing they're going to have to do is is really consider whether right now, wh- whether they're going to play Darius Layton games. I'm talking the final few few minutes of games. It doesn't mean that you bench him. I, 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 I loathe some of this. You know, it doesn't mean you have to take him out of the starting lineup, but I think when it comes to him being in the final four, he's not, he, it, he can't do it. I don't know if it's a mental block as much as it's maybe – you know, he looks a little uh, leery physically. He's still coming back off that injury. Um, he's not playing as strong as he normally does. I I don't see – I don't think you're helping Darius by having him as one of the final players on the court in the final three minutes of the game. I just don't. And I think you saw it with the inbound pass. I think you saw it with a few of the other possessions. Like, he's not where he needs to be. And I worry if you continue to put him in these situations and he fails – I think the confidence is going to become a bigger issue than um, than maybe even just dude got smacked in the face a bunch and is really kind of over being smacked in the face. And in fairness, I like I don't think I've ever seen a player get smacked in the face more than this that wasn't smacking people in the face first. Like it is, it, it is as if Darius has some magnet on his face that attracts other people's hands and elbows. It's the damnedest thing. Last year, he got poked in the eye like three or four times. There was the getting like literally just punched in the eye, slapped in the face. Like, I just, it's the damnedest thing. It's it's like in baseball, like, no, actually, no, it's not like baseball. Because I was going to say, it's like when a guy is like the guy that leads uh, baseball and being hit by pitches. No, that guy always is standing over the plate. Darius is just out there living his best life and the five fingers just smack him right in the face. As I, we, like, we need, like, an astrologist on this. We need to, like, figure out, to, does his face need need uh, exercised of a demon? Like, we got to figure out what's going on here because um, I, I kind of am off the point of what I was going to make, but the point is I just have never seen it. I'm mystified. I am completely stupefied by how often that dude, and it's not just getting smacked in the face, it leading to significant injuries. Like, we're not talking about ACLs here. We're not talking about Achilles. It's like, ah, Darius has yeah, broke his jaw. Ah, Darius has like a, uh, you know, some sort of a nasal fracture. What the hell? John, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? Yeah, two things, sir. One on Darius, but the first thing about the game. I think we got two fixated on that last shot, uh, and that didn't define the game. The game was when they fought back from 10 points down, and, and they made a game out of it, and they all – could have taken shots, but they moved the ball until they got it to Struce's hands because they turned down several shots to get it to him. That's number one. That shows maturity. Number two, Darius is a turnover machine. 
something about he turns the ball over. And that little drive he has to the right and flip up the alley-oop, every team in the world knows when he goes that way, he looks for the pass, try to hit one of the center or the power forward. That's why he turns it over quite a bit. Check his turnovers. He's got to cut down turnovers. Whatever else he does, he has to cut those down. That's it. John, look at that. I like the little mic drop there at the end, 216-474-0092. I just, I've tried that with Vanessa. All right. Yeah, I'm not really happy with you right now. I don't like the way you're just talking to me. That's it. It doesn't work. Don't do that. Um, the turnovers are up. I mean, he's always been a guy that has had turnovers. I, Not all turnovers are equal, though. And when the turnovers happen, specifically late in the game, like Darius slowly but surely is going to have a knock on him about playing winning basketball. And so if it if you get a little sloppy in the middle of the game it, we and we can explain those turnovers away, it's fine. Uh, he's also a point guard. Guys, you have the ball in your hands more, you dribble a lot, you're going to turn the ball over more. But it's win he goes dribble heavy late in the game. It is when, I don't want to say careless, but when just devastating turnovers have been happening, that concerns me more. Turnovers in the final three minutes to five minutes of the game, that comes back to the idea of Darius isn't right right now. And the only thing that I will defend, because John is right in totality, Darius's turnovers have been an issue um, throughout his career. I think some of that, again, is who he is, the style of basketball that he plays. But, man, I got to say, it's not helping the Cavs win basketball games. I don't think it's helping Darius. And we've already talked about, you know, let's stagger those those guards a little bit to, to just give Darius run with shooters where he doesn't have to worry about, do I have to hand the ball off to Donovan? And I actually, part of the game, I can't remember what part it was. I, no, I think it was in the second quarter. Early in the second quarter, Darius was off the court. Donovan was kind of running point. So I just need to see more of that, and but more of that for Darius. That's something that we've kind of harped on on this show. And then I just think you have to ask yourself, is there a different shooter? Is Maybe is it better to have somebody who is as good of a shooter as Darius late in games around Donovan who maybe isn't having confidence, strength, whatever the issues in totality are with Darius. I think that's a and, – and listen, it doesn't mean at the end of the season he won't be back on the, the, the court. But I, I, you're in an absolute race for the two seed. You've got a team that has lost a lot of their mojo over the last three games just in terms of how they've played the, offensively, the three-pointers, all that. That does bleed over to the defensive side of the ball for this team. We're not at, oh, bench Darius. No. But late in games, maybe he's not in there on games where he's clearly starting to struggle. Maybe we start to do more heavy splits between Darius and Donovan so you can give him opportunity early in the game to get that feel going. At some point, listen, JB can't be bad with out-of-timeout uh, out uh, plays and, or inbound plays. He can't be bad at timeout usage and have a player like Darius who's holding them back on the court in those moments. He can't. All right? This is if if JB's going to be JB, if he's not going to get better in those moments, you got to make sure everybody is confident and playing the right way and playing winning basketball late. Darius right now is not. Love the kid. I think people are making too much out of this and putting too much on it and starting to have like a, a long-term, well, this is who he is. I think it's just a bad, I think he's just in a rough spout. 
I think this is just a rough spell for him. But you don't have to perpetuate it with some of the decisions the Cavs have been making. Again, it was a great win last night. NFL Network analyst Charles Davis. NFL Network provides live coverage of the 2024 NFL Scouting Combine Thursday through Sunday. Coverage starts at 3 p.m. Eastern on Thursday and Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern on Saturday and Sunday. Charles, welcome to the show, bud. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. How are you guys doing? Doing very well. Happy Combine Week for you. I, yeah. When I've gone, I've loved the Combine. I love right? the night part of it. I love getting to know some of the prospects. <laughs> I'm just curious, for, for you, I, what yeah. do you value most out of the Combine? I value the opportunity to take the book learning that I have to do to get ready for it. Right, for example, there's 321 kids in this year's combine. All right, That can be daunting. You know, you almost feel like you're back in school and <laughs> it's midterms or finals. But take the 321 kids that you're spending time on, you know, one cheater on each one of them. You may have a few other stories that come into play. Some of them you've seen play in college. You might know, you know what I'm talking about, right? But now it comes to life because they start to move. Is it actual football? We know that's not true. We'll watch that on tape. But now you see their athleticism. You see their ability to do things. You see whether they're in shape or not. You know, and then you're around nothing but people <laughs> who are talking ball, evaluating the whole deal. You've been to the combine, right? I will bet it at some point while you were at the combine, a regular person walked by, caught your eye, and you thought, boy, he looks like he'd be a good five technique. That's just what the combine does to you, right? And that's part of it, but you're totally immersed in it. That's, that's fun, and it also it lets me know I've got plenty of more work to do. But this is a great, great, for me, starter's pistol to get things going as I do do my draft evaluation and get ready for Detroit. So what are, what are some of the names that you've been uh, intrigued by? What are some of the prospects that you really have, uh, have, have are interested to meet, see, whatever, this week, but also that you've been watching recently? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because every one of these positions – has the so-called top people as we head into the combine, right? We know the quarterback food chain. We know it's at the top with Caleb Williams, USC. Do you like Jaden Daniels, LSU second, or do you like Drake May, North Carolina second? That's up to you, right? Are you as in love with J.J. McCarthy of Michigan as maybe some other people are? And will we have a second wave that allows Michael Penix from Washington and Bo Nix to get in there? Then I go, you know something? I saw this kid out of Western Kentucky named Austin Reed. I just liked. I've liked him his entire career. He completes a lot of passes. You know, it reminds me of a little bit. Brady Zappi. I mean, Bailey Zappi coming out of Western Kentucky. And before that, Houston Baptist, just skilled operators, not to get the football to people. Am I saying that they're going to be starters? No. Am I saying they're going to start at any stage? Perhaps. But I'm eager to see how he comes out here and spins it. Because guess what? The top guys aren't going to play. I mean, they aren't going to throw here at the combine. So now you're next to the next tier and the next tier. This is their chance to kind of get on the stage and announce themselves to other people. Maybe we should follow up and see them. You know, Leatu Latu, the great pass rusher from UCLA is here. Okay, Jared Verse, the pass rusher from Florida State's here. But we don't talk about Braden Trice very much from University of Washington. And I thought he had a heck of a season for a team that played for a national championship. Guys like that I'm really eager to see come out here, do their thing, and maybe get a little bit extra light on them, a little extra heat. Charles, how many potential franchise quarterbacks do you see in this draft? Right at the top, those three. Okay. Is McCarthy one to be determined? 
but I think that there's more of a feeling like yes and there is no. He played a different style than the other three because, yes, he was the quarterback, but those other three, did the offense run through them unequivocally? The answer, we know what that is. For him, their offense was so good at being able to line up and mash people at the line of scrimmage that they spent the second half of the Penn State game not throwing a single pass. But he won a national championship. He's got potential. He can make plays. We haven't asked him to do as, as much as the others in terms of that. That does not mean he's capable. And that's what people are evaluating right now. So right there, that's what, there's, there's your top guy. Do some people believe in Bo Nix? Do some people believe in Michael Penix? I think the answer is yes. I'm not as willing to go quite that far yet. But you know how this process works. Call me again in a month. I'm going to have a different answer for you. Charles, what's so interesting about the, the quarterback position is the amount of resources teams throw at it, the amount of uh, the amount of attempts to figure out what makes a good quarterback, and uh, and it's funny because the the prototypical quarterback in the last decade plus has also changed because yeah. of the evolution of the game. And oh, by the way, the college game has continued to change as well, which changes what players are being asked of. So I'm just curious, from the evaluation side of things, has the challenge of evaluating college quarterbacks changed over the last decade plus as both the prototypical quarterback has changed and the readiness of guys coming out of college has changed? It has. It has. And especially, let me hit the second part, you said the readiness coming out. Because when Brock Purdy hit and played so well for San Francisco – and we all look like dummies because he was the last pick of the entire draft and none, you know, no one took him. And, you know, of course, San Francisco gets credit now. And, well, we know he was great. If you knew he was great, you would have taken him before the last pick of the draft. Okay, so I'm, not, I'm like, let's just stop that. Let's stop that nonsense right now, okay? You get credit because you have him now, but please. But anyway, all I'm saying is you asked about, you know, that part of the evaluation. Most of these kids are coming out with like 20 starts now because they're coming out earlier, right? In the old days, everybody had the four years of body, four-year body of work in. Mark Sanchez came out with like 16 starts coming out of USC, and that's kind of like the start of, oh boy, we're not going to get the guys that Bill Parcells used to say, I need 25 starts before I truly evaluate a college kid. Those kids aren't very much available. And then all of a sudden, Purdy's got 48. And, you know, we're going to have some COVID quarterbacks. Uh, Bo Nix, 61 college starts. Okay, so that evaluation probably is better for them and have people believe in them a little more than, let's say, last year, Anthony Richardson. What, 13 college starts? Davis Mills went a third round to Houston a few years ago, had injuries, different things, like 11 or 12 college starts. It's harder for those guys. The more experienced, the better, but it's harder for us to make that evaluation because prior to COVID, we were getting guys with, with uh, a whole lot less starts. Charles Davis on the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. Looking specifically to the Browns, Charles, do you still think the arrow is pointing up for the Browns in 2024 after a uh, very nice 2023? I do. I absolutely do because the arrow was pointing up in terms of how Kevin Stefanski was running things, Andrew Barry's running things. The I always use the word irony incorrectly. And it's always a word that pops into my head. But the thing that really gave me pause last year was Deshaun Watson. We know he'd been out for a long time. And I think that we were fooling ourselves to think that he'd be ready to go terrifically right out of the gate. 
he was hitting his stride and played the best game he played for Cleveland Browns in what game? At Baltimore, the game that he got hurt and played through. That was, when, that was his warrior day. Best game he'd played in, in, in Cleveland uniform. Little did we know he'd be out for the rest of the year. Now you're getting him back, okay? We know what Flacco did at the end of the year, but the investment's too high. We know that Deshaun Watson's going to be the guy. They've got to figure out what they're going to do at running back. You can't count on Nick Chubb making another miraculous return. Okay, is Jerome Ford going to carry the mail? Are you going to continue to get other people? And then the offensive line had so many injuries at the tackle position. What kind of moves are going to be made there? That's why I think the arrow's pointing up. The defense played so well under Jim Schwartz, especially at home. A lot of those key pieces will be back, continue to fortify those. But I figure if they could do what they did last year with the injuries and the other issues they faced, the quarterbacking that they had, you know, Dorian Thompson-Robinson finally is going to start at quarterback, you know, 40 minutes before kickoff because we all thought Deshaun Watts was going to play. He's not. He wasn't ready to go that time. I just think the arrow is definitely continuing to point up for Cleveland. Charles, you mentioned uh, Kevin Stefanski, Andrew Barry, the job they've done. Kevin has won his second coach of the year in four years as Browns coach. If I if I put your feet to the flame and ask you to pick one, whose stock rose more uh, around the NFL this year, Kevin Stefanski or Andrew Barry? I'd say probably Andrew Barry, just because general managers, as a general rule, we don't give them the credit they deserve, but we want to ding them all the time. And you've got to make move after move after move, and your ready list has to be out there. And when you think of the injuries that they had and the ready list that jumped in and gave them decent enough play, look at the tackle position. All right. Remember, they drafted Dewan Jones in the fourth round. A lot of people took him off their board. Remember, he wouldn't even get on the scale at his pro day. A lot of people thought he didn't like football. But, but Cleveland took him and let him know in uncertain, no uncertain terms, this is how it's going to be if you come here. And the kid answered the challenge. And before he got hurt, was doing a nice job filling in for Jack Conklin. The left side, Jedrick Wills. Now you're filling in with, with Hudson. You're, I mean, it's, just, it's a constant revolving door. And then you just turn around and look at the defense. A number of injuries there, but Jim Schwartz had them fashioned and ready to go. When they were healthy, they read their peak. But don't forget, Andrew Berry also brought in Joe Flacco. That's a big, big deal. And that team transformed themselves one more time. Went to the playoffs, and it was a disappointing, you know, game in the playoffs. But, boy, what an exciting run down the stretch, huh? Andrew Barry, to me, stock rose higher. So looking to that defense, you had mentioned how good they were at home. The defense, especially in that playoff game, struggled a little bit. And I, I've yep. been racking my brain on this, CD. I really have been trying to figure out how they could be so night and day at points. Yeah, Just number I don't one know. at home. Any working theories on that? I have none. And and I'm waiting to get it. I'm waiting to figure it out. I know people feed off the energy of the home crowd and just things like that, but the really good ones feed off their own energy. And I think that's the next step for this Cleveland defense. And believe me, I will never put any words in Jim Schwartz's mouth. He speaks for himself entirely. I just stand by and watch with admiration the job that he did. But I would bet that, you know, if I really asked him, he would say, I'm trying to figure that part out too because we're good enough to play anywhere. Why home versus the road is such a disparity? Now, some of it, I think we could look back and say maybe the offense struggled in certain games and that made it difficult. But at the end of the day, both sides of the ball will not allow one side to say, well, they did it, and that's why the other side went there. You're supposed to take care of your own business, and I think that's what they're looking to figure out.
Charles, what area would you like to see the Browns address this offseason, either in free agency, trade, or the draft? I would like to see them get a big runner because in their division, they want to continue to run the football. I think that is just a huge, huge thing. I'm not saying Jerome Ford can't do it, but I would really want to increase my depth as the running back position because, as I said, you just can't count on Nick Chubb pulling off another miracle. Not saying he won't, but if you're just sitting there waiting, well, we'll hold until Nick gets here. I think you're doing a lousy job with that. And then on the other side, continue to help with the pass rushers. Miles Garrett continues to need that help because they didn't get exactly what they wanted to get last year out of Zadarius Smith. Are they, are, are they able to get it? He addressed it himself. Hey, I've got to get more pressure, more sacks. Obo Glonquo, can they get some more people to continue to help him out? Because if so, with the way Jim Schwartz wants to play, with the front four going to get him, and then you can cover on the back end, then you're in good shape. But you got to give Miles Garrett some help. Because remember, he won, what, five straight games without a sack? Didn't mean he didn't get a lot of pressure. But you can't count on him being the only guy to get home. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, another pass rusher. They, they've had, you know, uh, Jadavian had one great year across from Miles. Olivier Vernon yeah. had one great year. But the Browns have really struggled to put another, and not necessarily Miles play. you're not going to find another yeah. Miles player, but another guy that could consistently get 10 to 12 sacks. I'm just curious, yeah. if, they, and if they added another premier type or just Oof. under premier type edge rusher across from Miles, how would yep. that change this defense? And how would that change Miles? Well, what it, what it would change big time. One, one, it changes defense because what Jim Schwartz does so well is he puts you in third and long situations, right? He takes away your ability to win first and second down. So if he can get you to third and seven or more and you add that extra pass rusher, it frees up miles from everything being a double, double team with a chip in the backfield, All right? Now you've got to parallel it out and realize your quarterback can be sat on on the other side. And you know what else that increases? The inside gut pressure because now more people get spread out. So maybe those guys get better one-on-ones inside of Dalvin Tomlinson and people like that. And that gut pressure really kills quarterbacks right in their face. All those things come into play for them. But look, Miles Garrett would love to have a running mate. Okay, when was Joey Bose at his best with the Chargers? Melvin Ingram, remember? Running mate on the other side who was capable of getting double-digit sacks. Joey Bosa was a lock for double-digit sacks during that time. Miles is getting the double-digit sacks. But he might get 25 if you have another guy over there who's really good. That's what you're looking for. Charles, you're the best, man. Always love your combine coverage. Love your NFL thoughts, your college thoughts. Uh, Can't wait to see what you got for us this week. And enjoy it. And remember, 1 a.m. cutoff. All right? Nothing good happens in Indianapolis at the combine after 1 a.m. I will remember that in a big way. And actually, I will hear your 1 a.m. cutoff and raise you to 11.30 p.m. How about that? That's a very smart man. That's a veteran of the game. Uh, Charles, great stuff, buddy. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. You take care. We've gotten to a point. Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker of yours. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. 
Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and the restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details where the Browns have piecemealed their, their, and it's really their pass rush around Miles. It's not just the defensive end, but even though they brought back Jadavian for a second year, Jadavian was just, he just didn't have the same impact the second year. Um, Olivier Vernon was really good in 2020, tore his Achilles, and then obviously um, wasn't able to come back from that and wasn't able to continue his career. So, this is one of those off seasons where you know the Chiefs aren't going to be tagging Chris Jones. Uh, it looks like they're going to use the tag on Lejarius Snead. Um, you start to look at some of the other players that are going to be available that are not going to be tagged, but even more so than that, like uh, the Chargers are going to likely have to make a decision on either Khalil Mack or Joey Bosa. Um, Washington is uh, looking potentially to move on from Jonathan Allen. Like, these are the kind of moves that I think this is the year because you don't have a true glaring need. Last year, you went in and you had multiple glaring needs. You addressed them. And to varying degrees of success, but like, wide receiver is not as much of an uncertainty as it was last year. It's still not where it needs to be. I think some of that's on the, the quarterback. But you've got an overflow of talent at cornerback and at tackle. You've got uh, the safety spot is so much more solidified now with Juan Thornhill, with uh, the young safeties, and I'm, I'm oh Grant Delpit signing the contract extension. So I think it just makes sense to finally take that swing at a player that can not just be here for next year across from Miles, but maybe be here for the next two, three, maybe four years and giving Miles a chance because I agree with everything Charles Davis said. If you can get another guy who is legitimately a 10 to 12 sack player on his own accord before we talk about Miles. I mean, I, he said 25 sacks. Miles could have that. I, that's a little high for me, but could could Miles absolutely take another step next year production-wise? 100%. We have the pulse with Keith coming up in just about 15 minutes here. Uh, we do have Aaron Taylor, CBS Sports College Football Analyst, coming up at 420. Danny Cunningham joins the show in the 5 o'clock hour, but... While we had uh, Charles Davis there, it was interesting. The uh, the annual NFL Players Association survey of players about organizations across the NFL, the results were released today. And the results were really not kind for the Cleveland Browns. And some of the things that go into this, so so this is weighted. So when we talk about the their overall placement, the Browns were ranked 23rd in the NFL in their survey of players conducted by the NFLPA. And one of the things Kevin Stefanski actually talked about, uh, because they were ranked 30th, they were given a D grade by players for, or sorry, they were 20th. Oh gosh, where am I now? I'm messing this up. They were given, yeah, they were given a D grade 30th in the NFL for their weight room. 
So Kevin Stefanski did make the comment earlier that uh, that they're going to be working on having a new weight room in Berea. But I think this is kind of one of those things. And if you look at it, like the Chiefs were one of the five best organizations in the NFL. Lamar Hunt, or sorry, Clark Hunt, their owner, was given the worst grade out of everybody with an F. So like you can have weakness. This is not the end-all be-all. But I think a couple things that I didn't like. I thought it stood out that Kevin Stefanski was given a B minus grade, and that that ranked twenty eighth out of thirty two. Uh, that's something I think we'll explore later in the show. But I thought it was interesting that ownership was given a B, which was seventeenth in the NFL. I think when you start to look at all the other things, which is uh, treatment of families, was a D minus. Um, that was twenty sixth. Uh, locker room was uh, a D plus. That was 23rd. Training staff, 24th. Weight room, 30th. Uh, head coach, 28th. I think the ownership might be getting a little bit of love here because the ownership does pay. And I think because, and I would guess Jimmy and D, they, they, are, they are available to their players. But I think once you get into the brass tacks of some of these uh, um, rankings, it does speak to an organization that still has a ways to go. And it's so funny because, like, I don't think this is the biggest deal in the world. But I don't like hearing that players don't feel like their families are treated well by the Cleveland Browns. Um, that's something that I think teams and players do pay attention to around the NFL. I don't like hearing that the weight room, that's something that is is relatively I would say relatively, but it's relatively cost-effective. That is easily controlled. So when it comes to how you deal with your players, I think if you want Cleveland to be the team we all want it to be, which is a team that can stack wins, stack winning seasons, a team that can win two straight seasons in a row. Maybe one day, let's think, let's let's really get wild here. Maybe three straight trip to the playoffs. Maybe three 10-plus win seasons. I know that on the field, it's as simple or or can be as simple as have a franchise quarterback and keep that guy healthy, right? But when it comes to the other part of it, man, I, I don't care to hear this about the Cleveland Browns. I think this is for a, for a team that I think is so good at listening to their fans, sometimes almost to the point of paralysis with listening to their fans. But think about all the things they've done for stadium engagement. Think about how they engage on a social media level. Like, think about all the little different things that they try to do to, to honor fans. I, I, I think this is, this is the next step. Not great, Bob. And in fairness, like the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, um, the Rune family got an F. All right, yeah, you also had Mike Tomlin get an A or an A-plus or something like that. So it, I consider it kind of a little deal, but I, I was a little bummed out to see this because – Cleveland's tough to get people to come, man. Sorry, the Cleveland Browns organization has a previously has had a reputation of being a great place to get a paycheck, but not a place you want to spend the rest of your career, which saw guys accept fat money from this team and then basically do everything they could to get cut early, take their guaranteed money, and go somewhere where they could win. I don't think the Browns are there anymore. But if you want to be a place that, you know, like Baltimore, and I, I don't have Baltimore's rankings in front of me. Baltimore every year has guys at the twilight of their career come 
and they they extend their careers. Kevin Zeitler was uh, allegedly at the end of his NFL rope. The guy spent, I think, three or four years in Baltimore. He'll be a free agent this year, completely rejuvenated his career. Uh, Calais Campbell, after struggles in Arizona, at the seemingly twilight of his career, went to Baltimore and and had a good couple-year run. Derek Wolf, there's guys every year that choose there because of, one, they've won a lot, and two, they take good care of their players. So, again, I don't think this is the end of the world, but I think this is a good window for the Browns to look at and go, all right, how do we make players feel like we take care of their families better? How do we make players feel like they're truly a part of the Cleveland Browns organization? Because if you want to be a first-class organization and win every year, that doesn't just start on the field. It doesn't just start with a with Deshaun Watson staying healthy. You got to treat your players right. I, I hope the Browns look at this and go, all right, we got to get on the top of the league scoreboard in every one of these categories over the next couple of years. 216-474-0092. So the Browns ranking 23rd in the NFL in the survey of players conducted by the NFL Players Association. You guys see this is a big deal, little deal, or no deal. Perception is reality with NFL players. And listen, the, the, the Browns have made some strides. The last two years, they've suffered a little bit for because they've had two bad years where they've uh, graded out poorly in this survey. Like, they've come a long way from the Haslam's buying this organization and immediately um, gutting the alumni relations department. They've come a long way. But in the same way, on the field, the last four years, they've come a long way. I don't know Kevin Stefanski is uh, one of the five best coaches in the NFL, but if you look at – he didn't get fired this year, four years in. He's got a chance to be the guy that's here for the next six or seven years, at least as of right now. That's different than any coach I can talk about in the last 20 years here. Uh, same thing with Andrew Barry. Even if Kevin weren't to work out down the line for whatever reason, I'm just saying hypothetically, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. Even if that doesn't happen, Andrew Barry is going to be here for a really long time. As you heard, and I thought, I thought that was one of the other big things that I loved hearing from Charles Davis. He had said, you know, Andrew Barry has really improved the the perception of the Cleveland Browns, and he's done himself a lot of favors around the league with the job that he did last year, that's cool. And the Browns perceptionally, I don't want to say it's night and day, but it's a lot better than it was six or seven years ago when it was you could probably grade out every one of these things as uh, almost every one of these things as bottom of the NFL. But now it's time to go ahead and close the gap. You want to catch the Steelers, keep Deshaun healthy, and, uh, I don't know, treat your players' families better. And figure out, and because here's what it is, figure out why they feel that way. Feels like a good place to start. Um, figure out what's missing in the weight room. It's not just new weights, but, like, what else do you need? And, I, I'm by the way, I'm assuming that if they're going to get a new weight room, they, they are doing this, but, like, I, I want to see the Browns do better here in the future because that's – you start to win, you maybe win another 11 games next year, win a playoff game and next year, all of a sudden some of these things look different. That's like the final earmarks we should be looking for for the Browns who finally turned the corner, and they are one of the true top 10 organizations in the NFL. We had Charles Davis on in the 3 o'clock hour, and it's funny, you know, we talked a lot about Miles Garrett needing another um, 
another edge rusher across from Miles. And I just I don't I think I might be on the outside. Like I feel like NFL people agree with me. Anytime we've had Charles on, anytime we've had anybody else from the NFL on, when we've when we've asked him what's the Browns' biggest off off um offseason need, or when we've asked them pretty simple things like, hey, where would you like to see them add this offseason? They kind of continue to go back to the defense. And what I will say is I think the Browns are sitting pretty this offseason. They, they uh, restructured Denzel Ward's contract. They're now officially over the cap to start the new league year. I think before the new league year, you're going to see the Nick Chubb deal handled. Uh, that just feels like kind of a soft deadline for that. That's going to open up potentially some more money. We'll see about Amari Cooper and an extension, but like you've got the Deshaun money. You've got all these different options that the Browns have to open up more cap money. And truthfully, this is not what it was last year where you needed both depth and to try and find it, like five or six starters when, and you went into the offseason trying to find salary cap. So I think that's I think you're in a really good spot here. But everybody's focused on the wide receiver spot. If you look at the the offensive side of the ball, pretty much every spot of starters is spoken for. You've got six guys that could start in your offensive line because you've got three starting tackles on your roster as of right now. Every other one of your 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 guard or center spot is spoken for. Tight end between David and Joku and Jordan Akins, uh, your your top two spots on the roster there are spoken for. Even though you do need at least one, if not two more receivers, you have four receivers that are NFL-quality receivers. You didn't have that going into last year. Um, running back, Nick Chubb is going to be on the roster, very, very likely to be on the roster. Jerome Ford is his backup. Pierre Strong, by the way, I really like Pierre Strong. So you're three deep at running back, quarterback. Like you're, You could make a case that your biggest need on offense is actually the backup quarterback. Defensively, I look over there and I'm like, not only can you could you use a third starting defensive lineman, somebody who can generate consistent pressure. All right. So that's one thing. But you start to look across that defense, like uh Devin White, uh the the linebacker from um or Devon White, the, the linebacker from uh Tampa Bay. There's a report out that uh, Tampa Bay's not gonna tag him. That's a middle linebacker. And you're going into this offseason, your signal caller, the last couple of years, Anthony Walker Jr., although he is one of your best leaders, he's getting a little bit older. He has dealt with significant injuries the last couple of years. And you've kind of been year to year with, with Anthony Walker Jr. This would be an offseason where it makes a lot of sense, where if you can get a guy like White to be your middle linebacker, you put that guy next to JOK and, and you get, you know, White on a three or four year, or two or three year deal, your linebackers could be locked up, and you could have a really strong linebacking group, probably your strongest that you've had since going back to Demario Davis, Christian Kirksey, and a couple other guys being your linebackers. So two one six four seven four double oh nine two. I think the defense is a uh, is is the bigger priority this offseason. I not when I say that, what I mean is I think you need to find more starters and more high impact starters on the defensive side of the ball. Do you guys see defense as the higher priority? Because I think we've lulled ourselves into, well, they were the number one defense last year. It has not sat right with me, and it continues to not sit right with me. The Browns' road struggles with that defense. 
And, you know, we asked Charles about it. We asked uh, our guest, uh, Daniel Jeremiah, yesterday about it. We've asked a lot of people about it, and nobody has, like, a working theory. Not even, like, a suggestion of what it could be. To me, what it says is, and maybe I'm thinking too literally, maybe I'm thinking too much like we think in the, uh, the NBA, to me it means you're relying on a lot of role players to fill starting reps. Or that you're relying on four... Uh, four role players instead of, you know, maybe two starters at key spots. I think, I, I do think Anthony Walker Jr.'s health has been kind of an issue because when he hasn't been out there, honestly, Rodney McLeod, the defensive road issues really heightened when Rodney McLeod ended up missing the rest of the season. So I look at it and I think you've got a starter spot at every level of the defense that you need filled. Because I think next year, because of the uncertainty at quarterback, as much as everyone wants to go ahead and talk about uh, backup quarterback, and yes, it might be the most important position of immediate need on the offense, but whether you're going to win with Deshaun or whether you're going to win with a backup quarterback, that defense needs to stay number one. And so this, you're sitting pretty. You don't have, I mean, you had six starting needs last year. You have three. They're all on the defensive side of the ball. I think you need a middle linebacker, and that could include Anthony Walker. They might just decide to bring him back. I, I cannot – seems like such a good dude. He seems to be so respected by his teammates. I don't know I can be mad if they brought him back. It'd still feel like piecemealing that spot, but I'll be honest with you, he's been consistent, and when he's been healthy, he's been a nice player. But you still – you need to address that spot whether it's Anthony Walker or White or any of the other linebackers, middle linebackers out there. I don't know you need a true, like, I don't think you're going to sign another Juan Thornhill or another Grant Delpit, but I think you might need another quarterback in the safety room to help bring along what is still four young safeties on that defense. So that's the second spot. And then I don't really even want to think about it like, a, if you could get Joey Bosa, guys, that is my, that's my dream. If you could get him, because I think if if they if the Chargers cut him, which I, I still can't even fathom a team would do that, but the health issues might warrant it. If you could cut, if they cut Joey Bosa, he's going to go to San Francisco and be with his brother. But if you could get him in a trade, man, I think Joey Bosa across from Miles Garrett, I think I think that's the definition of wreck this league. But it does. That's not the only way you can do this. I don't know you need another defense, uh, another um, space-filling defensive tackle. I think if you go defensive tackle, you need a guy that's a little quicker, a guy that's going to consistently get sacks. But like, guys, um, it doesn't matter if it's an edge rusher or defensive tackle. I just think they need another high. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. 
Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. High-level starting defensive lineman. That, to me, is why... The defense really should be the priority this offseason. Mike, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? In total agreement with you, man. I think we should double down on defense. Simply because, man, you got to look at who we got to go through to get a Super Bowl or get or even get a championship. We, You got to be able to stop Kansas City. You got to be able to stop Cincinnati. You got to be able to stop Baltimore. And I'm looking to get a score match. I think it's... Mike, just let offense play football. Mike, you're breaking up a little bit there, buddy, but we do appreciate your your uh, time there. Now, the thing I liked that you said, talking about beating Kansas City, beating Cincinnati, I thought in the second half of the season, as Miles kind of was getting that extra attention, I think the Browns had to rush that fifth or sixth guy too often. And I think I think the formula, and I'm not trying to repeat the same thing I've said, but it is the, it is what I find to be true. The teams with a chance to slow down, contain, or, or just in the end beat Pat Mahomes, it's not just about do you have a franchise quarterback. It is can you get consistent pass rush and disrupt those those opportunities to move outside the pocket. Can you do that with four guys? Because if you can, you'll have a chance. If you have to consistently rush a fifth or sixth guy or do team rushes, rush your linebackers, if you consistently have to do that, He's going to pick you apart over four quarters. So in the regular season, I think you can, you know, if you can do that in the regular season, that's cool. But in the postseason, you want to beat Mahomes, and not just that. You want to you want to beat uh, Burrow. We saw it on the Monday Night Football game two years ago. The Browns consistently, with Jadavian, with Miles Garrett, with your defensive tackles, they consistently got home. They completely picked apart Joe Burrow. There's some other parts of that, too, like what you do post-snap and pre-snap and disguising coverages and all that, and whether you go zero coverage, you know, uh, too high, whatever, a lot of jargon there. But I just think you get that that strong pass rusher, which, honestly, it's never been easier to find in the NFL. Like, find me an elite wide receiver. There's like eight guys. Find me a guy who is available for one reason or another that is that can be the disruptor that Miles needs across from him. I not only do I think those guys are available, I think you can get them. I mean, hell, I'll still go back to Chris Jones. Chris Jones is getting a little bit older. He's not likely to be tagged in Kansas City. If you could put Chris Jones next to Miles Garrett, or you could put uh, even a guy that is a cut below that, like DJ Reader, who's more of a space eater, 
but still can generate a lot of pressure, I think you're going to see this team be the number one defense, not just in name, but in reality as well. We head out to the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. Welcome on Aaron Taylor, CBS Sports College football analyst. He's here to tell us about his latest involvement with Future Fans. It's a game launched by two Columbus entrepreneurs and football fans to create a simple, an easy way to engage young boys and girls in the rules of football through stories, helping them make fans for life. So I want to get to that in just a second here, Aaron, but I guess we should start with, hi, welcome to the show, bud. Good to be here, Nick. How are you, my man? I'm doing all right. You know, I am, we're in a weird position because I don't have a definitive answer on the Browns quarterback and whether he's going to be a franchise quarterback, but I also am slightly relieved about the quarterback class, because I I think each one of these guys at the top of the draft, Caleb, uh, J.J. McCarthy, Drake May, and Jaden Daniels, each kind of scares me just a little bit. Is that a fair approach to have on this year's draft class? Absolutely, man. There are warts on everybody, so it's a thin class at that position, and there's no for sure things at the top of the heap, which I think has a lot of people concerned, even though we're likely to see three quarterbacks taken with the first three picks off the board, even though they may not be the three best players from a grading perspective in this draft. When you look at Caleb Williams, his production and his level of play dropped a little bit this year. He still had a great year, but it wasn't what the 2022 tape was. And what we saw from him this year was trying to do too much holding the football too long, trying to be too innovative, scrambling and taking big losses and forcing plays. You're not going to be able to get away with that in the NFL. And if his production is relying upon that, when he doesn't have the best of supporting cast, he's going to be in for a long career, or certainly an entry into the NFL. So he's graded the highest. I have him as the highest rated quarterback. There were some maturity issues about words that he wrote on his fingers and painting his fingernails and some high profile games. But in his last game, at night that they lost with with championship ramifications on the line. Watching him sob in his parents' arms was a really good peek into the character of him and that his gas factor, his give a blank factor, is super high. So I like that about him. You look at Jaden Daniels, it's his slight build. He's super innovative. He can get outside the pocket. He's deadly accurate when he's on the run, and he can throw on all three levels, which is rare for somebody – at that position, but he's got a slight build and he put his body in jeopardy at times in the SEC and he's just not going to be able to get away from that. So from a decision-making standpoint, when he extends and tries to create with his legs is something you got to watch and his deep ball accuracy, sometimes the balls would flutter on him. So that's something you got to watch. And with Drake May, it's decision-making. He's got a cannon of an arm. He's a big, tall, six foot four, 230 pound. Like he's the dude you want getting off the bus at that position But without a supporting cast and a bad offensive line, he threw too many dang interceptions. So his decision-making and processing is something that people are looking at because accuracy isn't just about where to throw the football, it's when to throw the football, and that was off for him a little bit this year. So those are some of the things that they're going to be evaluating both in person on the pro days but also going through the tape and talking to him to see what kind of pedigree he's going to have because when you walk in that building, As the quarterback in the NFL, everybody should know it. So they're looking for that sort of character and it factor as well. I'm glad you you said what you said about Caleb because I'm always leery of talking about maturity with a kid that that we haven't seen up close because he plays out in L.A. And, you know, it's it's been interesting to see because that – I mean, we've seen guys who struggle with maturity fail in Cleveland. And I'm just – like if if you're an NFL team assessing Caleb – 
how do you how do you go about saying like, hey, what was with the fingernails? What was with the UCLA post game? Like what? And and your dad's comments about uh, staying in college another year. How do you handle that if you're a team? And how do you get? I don't want to say closure, but but maybe an assurance that that this kid really is the right guy to be the face of your franchise. You're always worried about that. But I don't think he's a Johnny Manziel. I just don't think he's cut from that same cloth. But there are some things to be concerned with. And, Nick, it's interesting, man. Like, this world of the NIL is a game changer, brother. Like, this makes these kids professional athletes at much earlier ages Caleb Williams was on the forefront of that. He was in the second biggest market in our country in Los Angeles. There's a lot of pressure and notoriety that comes with that, which can explain, in my opinion, some of the the immature things and the comments and fingernails and words that are on, that that pressure cooker can get to guys. So to a certain extent, I think a guy's character and makeup that allow him to mature quickly and navigate through those things is what it is I'd be looking for. I was a much different player in Green Bay at 25 than the 21-year-old that walked in the door and was too cool for school. There's a, that's human nature. So how quickly can a guy control that is certainly something they're going to be uh, uh, looking to assess, which is why Caleb Williams and all these guys' answers in the interview portion are going to be really interesting as this process develops. Aaron Taylor on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline, CBS Sports College football analyst, breaking down uh, some of this draft class going to the combine here. And whether it's quarterbacks or out, outside of quarterbacks, who are some of your favorite college players heading into the NFL this year? Well, it's interesting, man. I think when you look at the top of the draft, it's really wide receiver heavy and maybe the, the strongest position of the entire draft, particularly early, potentially six first rounders could go. And I think at the top of the list for me is Marvin Harrison Jr. right there at Ohio State. And I know there's a lot of Buckeye fans that are your listeners that know exactly what I'm talking about. You need no explanation. This dude is a better version or will be a better version of his father. He has some versatility to play inside or outside. I see him as a true number one, a guy that can big back and body and just dominate and bully defensive backs on that side of the ball. And he's subtle with his ability to change speeds and create opportunities to separate. So having a quarterback that can put the ball to him on stride, there won't be 50-50 balls. There'll be 75-25 balls or 80-20 balls. He can take the top off defenses and I think he's the, the bell of the ball, if you will. And just behind him, if not neck and neck, is Malik Neighbors at a LSU. I think a lot of Jaden Daniels' production was a result of Malik Neighbors being healthy and, and producing for him. So that's going to be another piece of data points that people are going to be looking to evaluate Jaden Daniels. And Brock Bowers, I mean, a lot of people, I think, are overlooking him and aren't including him in the wide receiver conversation because of guys like Roma Dunze, Washington's great receiver, but Brock Bowers was uncoverable. He's a problem. And in the SEC, where they've got a ton of dudes that are going to be first-round picks on teams that they played, he ate people's lunches. He's a willing blocker. He's not the most physical of blockers. But if you're looking for a guy that can create and mismatches in the slot and is a true wide receiver skills with a much bigger body, Brock Bowers is as sure of a thing as you can get. Injuries plagued him with the high ankle sprain. We know that he's tough, but how durable is he going to be or be some of the concerns. But everything that I've talked to, I called their Missouri game, talking with the coaches, he's the real deal, and I don't expect him to be on the draft board very long. But those are some of the many reasons why I think this wide receiver class is so dang strong. 
Aaron, looking to the current state of college football, Ohio State had a pretty nice uh, January there, getting Caleb Downs, getting Will Howard. Um, there's there's a, a whole cast of characters they brought in the transfer portal. They had, I believe, the number two uh, recruiting class from December. As they tried to steady the ship, which is weird to say because they were they uh, they were only a two loss team. As they try to steady the ship here, are you buying into the Buckeye super team approach? Man, I I think it's 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 what the game has become. Like we have full free agency, and the the court ruling down in Tennessee, I think, was the final death blow to the NCAA, or will prove to be that they can't get involved in the NIL incentives to use it now as recruiting to get guys to go from point A to point B. So, yeah, if you're Ohio State, good on you for making the moves that you you did to put yourself in this position. I think a big factor here is the, the three straight losses to Jim Harbaugh, who's now in the NFL. So the time is right for this Ohio State team to what they feel is to rightfully take back their their, you know, rightful place at the top of the, the big 18 conference. Now, I guess it is. Holy smokes. And there's going to be a lot of new blood there. So it's really important moving forward for Ryan day and the staff to make sure that they think, get things right, position themselves so that they can be there at the end and dominate the East. Like we're so used to them doing. And I think with the change at the helm, as good as Shrone Moore is and was, I think it's Ohio State's conference to lose moving forward, but that job becomes a hell of a lot more difficult because of the new brands that are coming in and the new era of free agency. But to their credit, the Buckeyes are at the front of that line, and I think they're doing an excellent job of positioning themselves. Aaron Taylor on the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline, CBS Sports College football analyst here. So uh, I'm a Bowling Green guy, so I'm a Maction guy. The Mac has added UMass back. It's weird to say back because they were there for like four years. Now they're back. There are rumors of uh, Western Kentucky potentially joining the MAC as well. And I am a proponent of a group of five super conference. And I'm I'm just, I'm a big Sunbelt fan as well. Can I get you to throw your support behind a MAC Sunbelt super conference today, right here on the spot? Brother, Nick, I'm all about it, dude. There's so much good football that comes out and how many fun memories we've had with Maxon. I've called a ton of Sunbelt games. There's some really good football that's played in those conferences. But what we're seeing to your point of UMass coming over, everybody is scrambling, trying to stay ahead of the inevitable change that they see coming, which is a breakoff of the Blue Bloods and the top-tier programs taking their ball and doing their own thing. There still will be a need for the group of five teams, but to your point, having a super conference where it's the best of the best of those brands and programs becomes a lot more compelling because of the quality of the play with what we have now with the 12 team, probably going to be a 14 team and probably expand further once they can figure those things out. So expect a lot more movement. It's not realignment, it's consolidation. So hats off to the Mac for trying to consolidate and strengthen their position. It's going to be hard for them to crack the code. I don't know if we're ever going to see a TCU or a Utah make the jump like we have before, but the lower tiered programs, the less resource programs like a UMass are happy as can be that the Mac asked them to come in. And for the Mac, that strengthens their position with another East coast market in Boston to be able to be more compelling to a television partner like 
Oh, by the way, CBS Sports, which is my employer, for full disclosure. <laughs> Aaron, uh, given everything you just said about the state of college football, does uh, does college football need a czar? And is there a name that makes most sense to you if two, three, four, five years down the road they actually made it happen? Man, the, the simple answer. As we turn the corner into the new year, a lot of people are looking to get healthier. That includes Hero Bread, who have just launched their new recipe using heart-healthy olive oil. Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. All with no compromise on the taste, texture, and bready goodness you expect from your favorites. Now they're listening to their fans and updating their recipe with olive oil, an antioxidant-rich oil that's been shown to reduce cholesterol and minimize the risk of heart disease. Try it today with code HERO10 for 10% off your purchase at HERO.CO. That's code H-E-R-O-10 for 10% off at HERO.CO. Tacovis is a terrific boot brand, and they're bringing a fresh perspective to heritage boot making. So they've carried forward all the time-honored traditions and quality you find in a great pair of cowboy boots. But they've innovated on comfort, style, and service. As someone who tries to pursue a minimalist lifestyle, I highly value quality over quantity. And I'm telling you, you can't find a higher quality boot than Tacovis. Their Western boots for men and women are handmade. Handmade from the most premium leathers with over 200 time-honored individual steps. Also, did I mention that they are Austin-designed, Texas-tested, and handmade down in the boot-making capital of the world, Leon, Mexico. And also, if you've ever wondered if you can pull off cowboy boots, which is something that I was thinking, you should pull on a pair of Tacovas and you'll see. Just do a quick search for Tacovas on social media and you'll see how adorably styled these boots can be. Visit tacovas.com, that's T E C O V A S.com, and point your toes west. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. So what exactly is the show about? It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. There is, yes. Uh, it does need oversight where somebody's making decisions that are in the collective best interest of our sport. We've seen too many times where people acted in their own behalf. We've seen people stick knives into the livers of their rivals and, and proponents and, and people that are in their conference. And the PAC 12 is the best case in point of that. And it leaves Oregon state and Washington state out in the cold, but everybody's taking their own ball and getting their own guy. And we're losing the fabric of what's built this sport. So yes, there's a lot of money to be made, but we're starting to see the super two with the big 10 and the sec start to extend themselves even more so than the ACC, which is reeling. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see them on the chopping block as the next conference to dissolve because of, of, what's going on and the, the lack of consistency of elite teams that they've experienced as of late. So uh, we do need a czar. The, who that is, is hard to say. Greg Sankey seems to be somebody that uh, has his finger to the pulse. Your AD that just left Ohio state would be a name that would come to mind. And I think would do a heck of a job, but you need somebody that's been around the block 
that's seen the evolution of this sport, is concerned about where it's going, and wants to do the right thing by everybody because that rising tide will raise all boats. And I think our sport at some point is going to have to go that way because that also is prudent because you end up making more money taking that model as well. So that's a long-winded answer to, to answer that question. But there's some things that a lot of us are concerned about, and I think a czar answers most of those. Well, I, I really enjoy your perspective on that. And as we do have you here, uh, in part, uh, for, for future fans, what can you tell us about this? Well, I'm about anything that well, promotes the sport of football. So I'm excited to share something that's allowed me to connect with my daughter over this sport, which was never possible before. She is anti-football because football takes daddy away in the fall. So every time I would get her to sit down on the couch and try and watch a game, she would roll her eyes and, and walk away. So enter Future Fans, which is an innovative brand that reimagines how kids learn the sports by making it fun and easy. And they do that by embedding the rules and concepts in a storybook-led experience. So I read her a story, we play some games, and she starts to become a fan. So as an example of the creativity, there's a ring toss concept that has four beanbags and four rings, and you get four chances to get a beanbag inside the ring. And if you do, you get to advance to that spot and get four more chances to throw a beanbag into a ring. And that's their brilliant introduction of the concept of having four tries to get a first down. So she doesn't even know she's learning football, but we're spending 20 minutes playing ring toss. And it's now allowing me to connect with her over the sport of football in ways that I never thought possible. So I wish they'd create something that could help me keep my mouth shut with my wife, because that seems to get me in a lot of trouble. And I, I, I haven't found ways to be able to, to do that. But in terms of teaching the sport of football and creating a fun and easy way that we both enjoy to learn the sport, future fans has knocked it out of the park, which is why they've won six toy awards in the, uh, since September when they launched, it was started by a couple Ohio dads. They're from there. They're girl dads. They they're huge Cincinnati Bengals fans and were struggling to find ways to get their daughters to watch games with them. So they created future fans and solved that problem in a big way. So people can buy this on Amazon for fifty nine ninety nine, or go to futurefans.com and use a promotion code fans to get 15% off. And if there's any D lineman out there, that's nine extra dollars, but if you're looking to connect with your kid or introduce the sport of football in a fun, creative way, check this out. You won't regret it. Well, if they do ever come up with something to help you uh, not put your foot in your mouth with your wife, please send that my way as well. Aaron, love the passion, buddy. Love the expertise. Really appreciate you, man. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate you too, brother. Aaron Taylor, CBS Sports College football analyst. Man, I love what he had to say about the quarterbacks in this draft. And I just, I think the NFL is drunk on potential. The NFL has always, to some extent, been drunk on potential. But, like, where we've gotten to with, like, I'll be honest with you, the Justin Fields thing does bug me, not because he played at Ohio State, but it's no longer, is player X better than player Y? Or does player X give me a better chance at at being a franchise quarterback than player Y? Right? It, it's no longer that. It's about, did I draft that person? And, which it's always been in the NFL, or it's for a very long time. But now, because of the way rookie contracts work, now it is, well, I don't definitively know this guy is going to be worth that contract, and because of how this works, I'm going to go ahead and, and clean the slate on a new five-year contract. And I just think, I think that kind of gets in the way of making the right decision. 
And it obviously impacted the Browns' timeline with Baker. Baker also impacted the Browns' timeline with Baker with his general uh, personality <laughs> and way of going about things. Um, and in, a, in an organization that seems to care about things like control and saying the right things, no matter if they're true or not, like that, that with the second that Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry got hired, those guys, it, no matter whether Baker's a franchise quarterback, a game manager, or whatever the hell else we're going to call him, um, it, that probably spelled the end of Baker Mayfield, given some of the antics that they probably didn't want to put up with. I thought the antics were pretty funny. I thought the antics were okay. I just think you got to play really well if you're going to be somebody with antics. But getting back to this this thing here, like it impacts these quarterback decisions, but not just that. Like, I mean, I, I mentioned the Daniel Jones thing where the Giants declined his, his fifth-year option. They went into a make-or-break year with him. He had a good year. They won a playoff game. And then because optics, it'd be bad to let that guy hit the open market, they panicked and paid the guy four years and $160 million. That was not smart. And, and by the way, they regretted it almost immediately. So, and again, the, the the alternatives were go trade for somebody like Justin Fields. The alternatives were go find somebody else, sign Jimmy Garoppolo. Now, I'm not saying those are incredible alternatives, but just you look at this. I'm not really that convinced Caleb Williams is destined to be that much better than Justin. That doesn't mean he won't, by the way. But man... When you start talking about maturity for a young quarterback is one of your primary concerns with that number one pick. I know he's not Johnny Manziel. He clearly, you saw the the tears at the end of the loss at the end of the season. He clearly cares. But man, there's some things there where, you know, you're going to be putting him, a 21-year-old kid is the face of your organization. And oh yeah, he's a little undersized. Oh yeah, um, his build is a little slight. Oh yeah, now you got to worry about maturity concerns. And by the way, that's the uh, that I do think Caleb is the best player or the best prospect in this draft. I love me some Drake May. Um, Drake being just kind of the big prototypical quarterback. Ten years ago, Drake May is the number one pick in this draft, and not Caleb Williams. But everybody's looking for the next Pat Mahomes. That'd be the other part I don't like about this. Um, well, he moves around a lot and does things that are like. Um, Oh, God. On schedule is one way of looking. What's the other way? People are now referring to it as uh, more flow-based offense. Kudos to any team trying to figure out which one of these guys. But, like, people are talking about J.J. McCarthy being a top-10 pick. I don't see that. I mean, I, again, if I think what matters most to any of these guys is that you get them into the right situation. Like, a Joe Burrow... Can go into Cincinnati two years, he's got him winning. Because Joe Burrow has some it factor, the perfect sensibility, the perfect um, blend of of traits to be a great quarterback. C.J. Stroud, um, walking into Houston year one, they're you know they go from the the number two pick to uh, now all of a sudden they're winning a playoff game. They're in a divisional round against Baltimore, and C.J. Stroud looks like a all time future, like gonna wreck this league for the next fifteen years quarterback. Uh, Andrew Luck took the Colts from the number one pick to immediately being in the playoffs those first couple of years. Peyton Manning, I think it was two or three years in, in Indianapolis, winning right out of the gate. Tom Brady a year into uh, his NFL career, but first year as a starter in the playoffs. So many of those things, though, like there are guys who can step into bad situations and succeed. 
these guys, specifically this these teams, Chicago, guys, you're going to need somebody to elevate that 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 whole thing. Because Justin Fields has been one of the most prolific running quarterbacks in the NFL the last two years, and it hasn't really mattered all that much. Because it is a one, it is it is not a good organization right now. And they have perpetuated losing with more losing because of decisions they've made. Look at Washington. Everybody loves the Dan Quinn hire. Dan Quinn's the adult in the room. I'm not here to bash Dan Quinn. Whoever's that quarterback needs to elevate a a team that just liquidated guys on their roster to get more draft picks like Chase Young and uh, Montez Sweat. Washington, you need a rookie that can step in and isn't going to be able to grow into the position, even New England. I mean, Gerard Mayo's a first-time head coach. You've got a lot of first-time guys on that staff that he hired because he values his guys over experience. Like Alex Van Pelt, first-time calling plays. uh, Sorry. Limited play calling experience, not the first time. You walk into New England, you you, you think that's going to, if you're the third best quarterback in this draft. So there are years where it's like the right team at the right time finds the right quarterback. Kansas City trading up for Pat Mahomes. Right time, right quarterback, right moment. Um, Buffalo, the next year, trading up for Josh Allen. The right quarterback at the right time. Josh Allen was the biggest project in that draft. Turned out to be either the first or best player by a wide mile in that draft. This year, man, Caleb Williams going to Chicago is going to have an uphill climb. This year, um, Drake May going to Washington. That is an uphill climb. But the NFL keeps selling, well, contractual stability and potential matter more than what you've actually seen from a player on the field. Most of the time, though, by the way, like, yeah, would I rather have Caleb Williams or uh, Russell Wilson at 35? Okay, give me Caleb Williams. Hey, you can have um, Jameis Winston on his third attempt as a starter or Drake May. Give me Drake May. But the Justin Fields thing and and Caleb – Justin Fields and Caleb Williams thing just feels – it just is a – I don't know there's a win there. 216-474-0092, Two one six four seven four double zero nine two. But I'm glad that Aaron Taylor was like, yeah, it's a it's a this is a risky crop of quarterbacks. There's some guys. I mean, they could all be good, but guys, we say that every year. But the NFL is on that. You know what? Again, of oh, we got to sell the potential. All right. And this 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 year in totality reminds me of the years where we were selling ourselves on something from the Browns. And I'm not just talking about it as a number one pick. I'm talking about like, you know, there were years where they didn't have the number one pick, but they had a number four pick. And it was, you're either going to take Trent Richardson or you're going to take Ryan Tannehill. And then they decided to take Trent Richardson and then trade up for Brandon Whedon. Well, sure, he's the fourth best quarterback, but dot, 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 he's older and he's this and he's that. And he was good at OK State. Um, Even from the veteran side, Russ, Tannehill, I think, I think, the prevailing notion is Kirk Cousins is going to stay in Minnesota, which feels like the right thing, but just overall. Man, I'm I'm just relieved that the Browns don't have to try and find a different quarterback. Like, the, the biggest concern you have a quarterback is, what are we going to do with backup quarterback? Like I'm not thrilled at the idea of Jacoby, just because I don't think Jacoby Brissett fits this, uh, fits this system. 
you know, the word early from the combine is it really seems like it's as close to a uh, sure thing that Jacoby could be back in Cleveland. I don't love that because I think you can find a quarterback that fits is more prototypical of what Deshaun has than anybody else. But I mean, if I, if that's my bigger issue, who's the backup and do they do they have a similar skill set to to Deshaun Watson and DTR? I'd I'd take that problem over. I got to pick between these bunch of goobers as the starting quarterback for your your franchise and your best chance because I think a lot of teams in the the market for a quarterback they're going to be looking for another quarterback next year. Two one six four seven four double oh nine two. Yes, that means the Browns quarterback situation is uh is more enviable than you realize. Between Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry, who raised their stock more in the twenty twenty three season? And I actually think if you ask ten people on the street, ten diehard Browns fans, I think you might it might go fifty fifty. Because the reality is I one, I listen, I think Andrew has always been held in high regard. Um, in the NFL. I do. I mean, I think you saw um, from his time in Indianapolis to his time in Cleveland, and then when he kind of came back as uh, – or sorry, he then went to Philadelphia, and when he came back, like, I think I think this is a guy who, if – and let's say – I'm not – this isn't going to happen, but if tomorrow he decided he wanna, didn't want to be the Browns GM anymore, I think he'd be the kind of guy who got snapped up very quickly in the NFL, right? Um Stefanski's interesting. I mean that the uh, the the team report cards from the NFLPA survey. If you guys didn't see that, the first thing that stood out to me about that wasn't the weight rooms because that's the easiest fix in the world. Um, renovate renovate that room, get in new weights, figure out what players don't like about it. It's a pretty simple fix. Um, it wasn't the the food in the facility again. You call down a. Hey, why does the food suck? All right, let's do better. I thought it was really interesting that Kevin Stefanski was graded as a B minus, and and that was uh, good enough for the twenty eighth coach, twenty uh, eighth out of thirty second NFL coach. Because if you look at the way NFL writers have have uh, have kind of portrayed Kevin, I mean, he's like one of thirteen guys that have two head coach of the year awards or more. I mean, that's pretty rarefied air. Like, we're talking like Don Shula. We're talking like truly great Hall of Fame head coaches, and he's got it in the first four years. Now, you can look at why he won that. The The Browns, 2019 was a disaster. Their head coaching situation absolutely cost them their chance to make the playoffs or be competitive. It set back the quarterback as well. So he walked in, went to the playoffs, all that kind of stuff, managed, um, managed, uh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, the, the the COVID season very well. So he was a shoe-in for that because optically, yeah, he won with the Cleveland Browns, won a playoff game, of course. This year was really interesting. Like, I, I thought 2020, listen, it was an easy sell on Kevin Stefanski as a head coach in 2020. This is the year that he that he should have won it. And and by the way, he tied with D'Amico Ryans as, uh, for, uh, for one, but he had the most number one votes, which is why he got it. So I think it's interesting that the media has painted Kevin now two times out of four years as one of the best coaches in the NFL. And from the NFL PA side of things, Kevin is is one of the five lowest graded coaches. I just think that speaks to – I, I don't know what it speaks to, honestly, because I don't know how many Browns players 
engaged in this survey. Um, you know, Kevin was asked about it today, and he was like, eh, you know, I, I, I like to have an open-door policy and yada, yada, yada. But he was asked directly, would you rather uh, win that second defensive player, the coach uh, – sorry, def- defensive player, coach of the year award, or would you rather um, be higher rated? He declined to answer. I think that's a really interesting thing to keep in mind. I, again, until they lose again, it's a little deal. But something to keep in mind that maybe the players didn't give him kind of the marks that maybe the media did this year. But 216-474-0092. Who raised their stock more this year? Andrew Barry, Kevin Stefanski. Because I actually do think it should be Kevin Stefanski. I think I thought Andrew Barry, listen, the reality is the Browns don't win with either of their contributions. But I think when it comes to stock, if the the organization had failed this year and they won seven games, Kevin Stefanski would be out on his ass. Andrew Barry would not. So just in terms of, and some of that is just how the NFL works now. You're starting to see GMs and front offices get longer runs. I mean, Howie Roseman has had, I want to say, five or six head coaches now, and he was allowed the failure of Chip Kelly. He was allowed whatever weird ending to the the situation that was uh, was the situation with uh, with Doug Peterson, where you won a Super Bowl in 2017, and like four years later, or three years later, the guy was fired. So GMs survive a little bit longer than head coaches do, but I also think like I I, I think what Charles said is true. I think people have a very high opinion of Andrew because he was in all the it organizations. He was in Indy when Indy was winning big with Andrew Luck. He was in, uh, I almost said he was in Cleveland. He was not in the good part of Cleveland, but he went to Philadelphia and learned from uh, uh, from Howie Roseman himself. He came back. Like, he's got a pedigree that people really like. Kevin Stefanski is a guy who, ironically enough, doesn't. He really only worked in Minnesota before coming here. So... I I, I kind of look at this as, like, Kevin's gone from a guy who people were like, oh, that's who you hired in 2020, and I, even locally. Like, again, I wasn't here when, when he was hired. I still listen to the damn station. You know, like, I remember people asking me about it because everybody knew I was a Browns fan, and I was like, what do you think about that? And it's like, I don't really know what to think. Like, it, it seems like they're trying to find their Shanahan or their McVeigh. So... I think Andrew has started in terms of just overall prestige at a his his pedigree was respected more because he worked with the right organizations and because he he did have like he timed his career perfectly. Kevin I kind of think is a guy who's gone from should he have that job to now because of the two coach of the year awards should we go ahead and actually call him one of the 10 best coaches in the NFL? The NFLPA survey notwithstanding. But most importantly, yeah, Andrew Berry decided to, to sign Joe Flacco. Kevin Stefanski made it work. And Kevin Stefanski won with four different kind of quarterbacks while juggling the PR nightmare that was Deshaun Watson's injury. They played five quarterbacks. They only won with four. I'm still not over Jeff Driscoll. I'm still pretty pissed about Jeff Driscoll. If we're really honest, that that Week 18 matchup against Cincinnati where I was like, hey, could this kill your momentum? And then they went into Houston and pooped the bed. I still have not forgotten that. 
fucking thing sucks. It's not your fault, Jeff Driscoll. It's the Browns' fault, and I've not forgotten that. However, I don't know other coaches juggle four quarterbacks and win. Do I think they were able to juggle four quarterbacks and win because the roster was in the best position it's been? In, in I mean, since that 2020 season? Absolutely. But in 2020, they're not winning with four different quarterbacks. Most teams in the NFL, by the way, I would say 99% of teams aren't winning juggling four different quarterbacks. That to me is why it should be Kevin. That to me is why it's befuddling that Kevin was given a B-minus grade by his own players. Let's go with Robert. Welcome to the show, Robert. Hey, Nick. Thanks for taking the call, man. Yes, sir. Um, you know, so the Coach of the Year award only includes the regular season. Yes, sir. And the voting is done at the end of the regular season before the postseason. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious when the NFLPA survey was taken. Because if it was taken after the postseason, I mean, I, I got to feel like a whole lot of players in that locker room might not be super thrilled about the way the season ended, you know. And maybe that's an easy way to blame on Kevin there. I don't know. Maybe that could explain the discrepancy. I like that theory at the very least. Keith, what do you have? I have your answer to that. It was not. It was administered from August 26th to November 16th. Okay. So maybe. Every player on the roster was given a survey. I have to think about it, guys. There were some rocky times. (laughs) Depending on whether you took that in August or whether you took that in November, I could absolutely see that. If you if you were a player feeling one sort of way in August, it might feel completely different in the middle of November after you beat Baltimore. I think that's interesting. I actually think that probably did hold Kevin Stefanski back then. That actually makes more sense to me now. I actually feel better about it that it wasn't – well, no, I'm glad it wasn't like last Tuesday where they're just like, ah, I've been home for a month. Yeah, bleep that guy. See, now I'm so glad. Thank you, Keith. That, I mean, now I'm, I'm kind of giving less credence to – that ranks specifically for for Kevin because it doesn't include the December run. Kyle, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? What up, what up, what up, man? So listen, I want to clear some air, man. Hold on, let me turn you off. My bad, you were playing in the background. But I'm I turned to off. Clear some, uh, yes, I want to turn you, now I want to turn you on. Ooh. Now, uh, now <laughs> I keep hearing, hey, if Watson and Stefanski don't mesh, Stefanski's gone. You know, that is BS, man. That is BS. Want to know why? The fans keep proof he's the guy. And even if him and Watson don't mesh and Watson plays horrible under Stefanski, Stefanski isn't going anywhere. He's staying right here in Cleveland. And honestly, get Watson out of here, man. I've seen enough Watson. Get him the hell out of Cleveland. If I could, I'd be outside of the door for Pittsburgh. Tell him to get out of here and go to the Steelers, man. Go make the Steelers worse. Okay? And shout out my dogs. Go Browns, man. I love your show. That's it. Thank you, Kyle. A lot, you gave us a lot to chew on there. A lot of energy there. Um, I don't think pitchforks are a thing anymore. Just just to start, I don't think we need to run people out of town with pitchforks anymore. I think if you just go up to them and, hey, leave. I, I well, By the way, really wouldn't work because he'd be like, I mean, I got a contract, dude. I can't really like leave town. Um, I wouldn't want him to go to Pittsburgh. No, I, I, I don't want to sell low on Deshaun. And... I'll be honest with you, I don't really want to sell high or low on Kevin Stefanski. Of, if you don't make it work with Deshaun, at some point it is going to be on Kevin Stefanski. Just makes sense because Deshaun still has a, uh, a longer contract until Kevin gets a contract extension. And, I mean, even if even let's say Kevin got a four-year contract extension this offseason, right? So his contract's now for longer, technically, than Deshaun Watson's is. 
the Brown, I say technically because the Browns view the Deshaun investment as a uh, ten-year thing, not a five-year thing. And two, um, Kevin ain't getting paid the same kind of money Deshaun is. I mean, listen, in in the pantheon, I don't disagree with Kyle, by the way. But I think we're. I think this is one of those moments where Kevin, the offensive coordinator, has to has to show some grace to Kevin, the head coach. That's why it is important who calls plays. That's why it is important what kind of scheme they throw out there. Because if we're in, you know, December of next year, Deshaun actually plays the full season, and he looks like a B minus quarterback, and you continue to play the Gary Kubiak West Coast offense. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of hard questions about that. And those are going to be fair questions, by the way. But, I, I mean, I agree, like, Kevin as a head coach deserves a lot of um, a lot of leeway, and I hope that it doesn't come down to Kevin or Deshaun. But in the NFL, it's usually as simple as follow the money. If you follow the paper trail, in this case, the paper trail is Deshaun's still got $160 million to go. Uh, even with a nice contract extension, you're not going to owe Kevin $160 million dollars you don't get three chance. I'm sorry. You don't get more than three chances to get it right with a quarterback, even if you win. There's going to be some hard questions. That's not what I want. It's just how the NFL works. Now, getting back to the idea of Kevin, I think Kevin. I, I think Kevin's job was tougher this year. I think. I think Andrew's. I think Andrew's job was made tougher by previous decisions of Andrew. Andrew's drafting wide receivers and drafting defensive linemen a drafting defensive lineman meant this last year he had to make up for a lot of missed picks in previous years so did he did he did he pass the flying colors 100% he did and you know guys like mo hurst guys like um oba okoronkwo and um I, I know elijah moore wasn't a number 2 wide receiver elijah wasn't a complete disaster Usage was actually that might be one of the few things I point at Kevin and say, "What the hell you were thinking with the usage of Elijah?" But like Andrew was kind of digging himself out as a GM of a hole he created. Kevin, not really. Kevin had everything go wrong. Coming off a disappointing year last year, where there were major problems, sorry, perceived to be major problems in the locker room, and then a year later. He comes out, the Greenbrier thing, which I still think is funny. I don't think it mattered that much, but they think it matters a lot, so good on you. But, like, he made the decision to go to Greenbrier. He made the decision, um, you know, he was the guy that kind of steadied the ship or at least didn't completely implode at juggling four different quarterbacks. I think he's the guy who made some really interesting decisions late in games that helped you get wins. None of the problems, okay, not none of 90% of the problems that the Browns faced this year were not a Kevin Stefanski creation. He reacted to absolute chaos with this team and got them to 11 wins. I just, that's that's the slight difference to me between the job Kevin did this year and the job Andrew did this year. Now to be joined by Man About Town reporter, host, 92 through the fan, Cleveland Magazine, the great Danny Cunningham. What's up, buddy? Not much, dude. How are you? I'm good. Good. I think I'm good. What, what do you mean you think you're good? Either you're good or you're not. I mean, we're just not there today. We're just, we're, we're, uh, we've, we've had a few whoopsies on air. I've oh, said the no. wrong thing about 15 times. I haven't mm. cursed yet. That could happen at any point. So okay. It, it can get worse. It can. It can also get better. 
that's, I, I think that's we found out how cynical you are, and oh, can always get worse. Okay, well, only when I'm talking about you. Okay, that's also fair. Uh, we were just having the <laughs> before you came in. We were we were talking about the Browns grades for the organizational grades. I was surprised that Kevin Stefanski was graded as a B minus. Yeah, and it kind of fed perfectly into something we'd been thinking about behind the scenes, hadn't brought to the air, which was. Who's done the most? Who's raised their stock the most coming off this last year? I think it's Kevin because I think Kevin, I mean, look what the hell he did. Right. I mean, four different quarterbacks. Andy Reid would struggle to win with four different quarterbacks. But like Charles Davis was on earlier, he's Andrew Barry. So I'm just curious where you lie on this before we get to anything else. So for me, it's Kevin because of the quarterback thing. I mean, he won games with Dorian Thompson-Robinson. He beat the San Francisco 49ers, team that lost in the Super Bowl. In overtime with P.J. Walker. One game, Joe, he made Joe Flacco look better than Joe Flacco has ever looked in his career. I th- And I do think that it's more than just a this year thing. But throughout Stefanski's tenure in Cleveland, I think that the exception here, unfortunately, is Deshaun Watson. But to this point in their careers, every quarterback has had the best, has played the best football they've had under Kevin Stefanski. That's not true of Deshaun yet. Browns fans have to hope that is true of Deshaun this time next year. But he's elevated every quarterback. And to do that with the revolving door of QBs they had, I think it has to be him. If you want to give him a B minus, I, I think that's harsh, but whatever. I want to know how all the other coaches graded better than him, though. Like yeah. that is insane to me. Yeah. And well, and the other thing is you never really know how many of the Browns players actually were were involved in this. Sure. So whether it's the difference between if it's 20 guys and 53 guys is pretty significant. I would also say, like Keith pointed out, that voting on this survey was done from like the middle of August till the middle of November. And I if, did not know that. And if you think about that, I if you had talked to this team, if you talked to the team in the bye week, they might feel different about Kevin Stefanski than coming off the Pittsburgh win. See, right? I, feel, I feel like that's unfair then. I, yes. I feel like it is very unfair to frame this guy as a B-minus who has won two Coach of the Year awards in the last four years won 11 games with this team, would have won 12 had that last game mattered, if we're being honest with ourselves here. I think it's really unfair to have voting go until November, and then the most important part of the season comes up. Stefanski and this Browns team really did a great job, and that doesn't matter towards this. That That is incredibly unfair to him. Well, and I think it does feed into the perception that what's the year-over-year difference from 2022 to 2023? Jim Schwartz and Bubba Ventrone. Sure. So whether that was a part of it or not, or whether, um, listen, I, I don't know that the Browns have necessarily empowered Kevin the way that I would expect a guy who's had the success that he has relative to the other coaches. Like we talked about, was it his decision to fire Alex Van Pelt? That's huge. If if we're talking about a first-time head coach or one year into it, uh, he's being coerced or, hey, you know, it'd be great if you fired that guy. If if that's one year in or two years in, okay, but after you had that season, like, I do think, like, I think the Browns set up and whether f- players think Kevin is empowered, I think that does matter. I do think that organizationally, they want to appear as if there's a lot of synergy between he and Andrew Barry, though. So I think that's why you don't, oh, was it Kevin's decision to do this? Was it Andrew Barry's decision to do this? I think organizationally, they want that question to be asked because they want it to look like those two are working in perfect harmony. We know that, yeah, they probably agree on a lot of stuff. No one agrees on everything. Well, there, there's but, not a pairing in professional sports where the coach 
and the personnel director, GM, president of operations, whatever you want to call that position of power, agrees on everything. But the only thing is, I don't think people around the NFL think it was Andrew Barry who did that. That's I think fair. I think people thought it was the the owner and whatever the hell we consider Paul DePodesta to do. Sure, that's and fair. I, and I think that's going to be a. But listen, I do think those dynamics matter. If players don't think you have the same kind of power that another head coach does, do I think that's going to hurt your perception? Yeah. Yeah. And listen, that happens to align with my personal narrative that I think it's ridiculous Kevin and Andrew have not earned the right to see Paul DePodesta put on an ice float back to, to San Diego. But and it, that, it's that also I think, working. Well, yeah, okay. But the point is, I, so here's the thing. Yes, you are right. But I think the whole point of Paul DePodesta was to stabilize the ship and make sure processes are working right. Um, because it's working, I, this feel this feels like a logical moment where when these guys get extensions, you can say, you know, Kevin, you know, Andrew, you now have a bigger piece of the pie. And the easiest way to do that is football operations roll directly up to you, Andrew, and um, all the coaching stuff, and like all the decisions roll up to you. And anything on in, uh, analytics, Andrew's the tiebreaker. And sorry, Paul, go back to baseball. See, I, I think that it would make the most sense, and this could be the way things operate. I, I guess what the Browns have really done this entire time is kept us in a cloud of mystery as far as what Paul's actual role is. But the way I sort of envision it being now with these guys being as successful as they have been since they've been here in Andrew Berry and Kevin Stefanski is Paul is almost sort of a, a highly paid advisor, and I'm fine with that. It's not my money. I don't know how much he makes. I have to imagine he's not cheap. But if he's an, an advisor that lives in San Diego, I'm cool with that. I I don't get the sense that that's what this is. I think he I, – I think, I think he's devised the perfect role for himself where you can think he is whatever you want to think he is. And, I th- and again, the, some of this is perception, so we, we can't take it one for one. I, I think there's a fair amount of people that think this guy has his hand in everybody's pockets and that he has the privilege of sitting at, at the right hand of, of Jimmy Haslam. And as we've known of Jimmy previously, whoever spoke to Jimmy last, the perception was, is the person that Jimmy's going to go with. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, I think, is my concern. Is anybody that and, and I get it, like I, I understand and empathize that Jimmy might feel like he could use almost like a consigliere that helps him so that he's not making um rash decisions or he's not susceptible to being played. Well, okay, well now you have people in place. Like the reason you needed that was you were so inconsistent. Sorry, not inconsistent. You were just bad. No, they were consistent. Just awful. Yeah, they, they were, were consistently consistent. awful. But like the reason you needed that was to protect Jimmy from himself. I feel like Jimmy should be, I think Jimmy should have gained the appropriate respect for Andrew and Kevin now. And I think he understands a little bit more. I think he understands the value. I think, I don't want to say you're out of the danger zone. Well, you never are. That's that's the thing. Because impetuous owners are impetuous. Do you trust that Jimmy Haslam doesn't need someone to help keep him from being himself? Do you trust that? No, but I don't trust Paul DePodesta either. But I think that his track record since this group has been around is pretty good. I'm very happy with what the Browns have been the last four years. They've not made rash decisions. They've done things the correct way. And, yeah, they've had some injuries. They've had things that I I necessarily have done. But at the end of the day, we have two 11-win seasons. We have a playoff win. 
am I super happy that they didn't win in the playoffs this year? No, but I can't be mad at this season for everything that went wrong that was outside of their control that they found a way to overcome. Maybe this is my inner meathead coming out. Maybe this is my own. I, like, I don't have a problem with analytics. That's not what this is. I just want the football guys in charge of the football. And I don't want ownership or some dude who's never played football at this level or has did not grow up in this game and have to learn the game from the from the the ground up, which I do absolutely think matters. I think you have a different vantage point on football when you were the lowest guy in the totem pole. He's never been that sure in the NFL. I want the this this to me is like, hey, how much respect can we show Andrew and and Kevin? Because I think they've earned it, and I just feel like having that guy that close, consigliere or not, I don't trust either guy. I did. Give, I, give I me think the football. It's been, give me the football guys. I don't have a reason right now to distrust him because of the success I've seen on the field. I don't have a reason to say, you know what, leave. I don't have the, that reason. I think the fact that people around football think he's like Emperor Palpatine uh, sitting right next to Vader, I think that for any of the nerds out there, like five people got that. But, yeah, that's that's ne- my perception. It. it looks like nerds. You've never seen Star Wars? Not a single episode. They're called episodes, mean? right? Okay. Like episode yeah. seven, whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. I got that right. Thank you for clarifying that because I no, I I, I, I know they're movies, right. yeah. but like, isn't it like yeah. Star Wars Episode Three? Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, but nobody is like nobody calls them episodes. They just call them movies. I haven't yeah. seen them. Yeah. Hey, did you watch the episode? Which one? Oh, you know, four. That one with the three, and then then they're completely four through six is the first one. One through three is the second yeah, that, one. That always seemed dumb to me. On this, we kind of agree, except for the fact that it. Chronologically, there's actually a reason for that, but never mind. Never seen them. You haven't either? Nope. Oh, hell yeah. I guess some of us were too busy getting action in high school and didn't have to <laughs> learn about the cool things in life. I feel bad for you. Wow. Kayla, you've seen them, yeah? Absolutely. Come okay, on. Okay, just making sure. 216-474-0092. Should I walk off the show? Like that's a problem. Yes. No, it's not. I feel like Star Wars has become, even if you have only seen, like Vanessa will only watch seven through nine, which is problematic in its own way. But the, the idea, at some point, if you haven't seen a Star Wars movie, episode, or TV show, you're just being stubborn. If you knew the list of movies and TV shows I've never seen, I don't think you would want to be friends with me anymore. We should probably avoid that topic then, because yeah. that could, could really come to a blow here. It could cause Goodfellas? some issues. Good, I have seen Goodfellas. Okay. Wolf of Wall Street? Um, I've seen parts of it, but never the full thing. Because you, you kind of feel like you can or be no, a part no, no, of no. I have seen that. I have seen that. Django? No. Re- Reservoir Dogs? Nope. Pulp Fiction? No. Okay, so you just don't like cool movies, right? No, I like cool movies. Name one. I just one. haven't seen a lot of them. Name one. Goodfellas, The Godfather. Okay, ones that I didn't mention. You didn't mention The Godfather. Another one. <laughs> Godfather 2. No, no, that's a cop-out. <laughs> no! No, no. Titanic. No. Yeah. Not seen Titanic. Yeah. I really love uh, Pretty Woman. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorites. Uh, that was on, I actually saw that accidentally this weekend. It was on TV while I was eating dinner. How do you accidentally see it? Because yeah. it was just on TV. So you just left oh, it on? No. Oh, no. I, was, I, wasn't I accidentally the only person. watched 90 minutes. I thought about turning the channel, but it uh, looks good. I couldn't find the remote, so you I just sure kind of sat there for 90 minutes. Sure the sound that, wasn't man? loud enough for me to follow that close.
I'm not giving you that on that one. And I mean, I, I would mark even worse. You watched it without sound. I would mark it down as I've not seen it. Still, I it is a lovely movie. But the point is, if that's your frame of reference for what a good movie is, we have problems. I think your stock has fallen here. A lot has been said about the uh, the Max Drew shot last night. I I am curious. Were you in the building for that? I was you- not. I was on a plane. Okay. It. Yeah. So. I, I described watching last night's game as I put out a tweet, something like, that's the Cavs team I've come to, or that's the Cavs team I know and love, or something like that. Something like that was meant as they'd went on that hot run in the second quarter, and I was like pumped up about it because it was such a good run. But then as the game went on, when the Cavs like went into a divot and fell on their ass, that, that tweet still applied. And the whole thing, it was so wild to watch Cavs Twitter while watching the game in real time, because with five minutes to go, you would have thought the sky was falling. Three minutes to go. And three minutes to go, and then with about two seconds to go. And while all that's true, the reality is, I think that's a good win last night, and I think it, I think it's a kind of win, as long as this isn't just a team that's really tired and maybe been uh, maybe a little overextended, I think you could see this team kind of generate something based off that kind of win. I absolutely agree. I think it was, and this is going to sound crazy, but that win was so important because that would have been such a bad loss after they they were up by, what, 16 in the second quarter, 17 in the second quarter. I don't remember exactly what it was, but they had such a big lead, and then it was down to, what, four at halftime where Dallas went on that run right before half. That would have been a really bad loss, and the Cavs haven't, since the All-Star break, had a reason to feel good about themselves. I know Donovan missed those first two games that they lost coming out of the break. You beat Washington, but let's be honest, it was not not an impressive night for anybody involved, Just but wins are wins. Last night, Dallas has been playing really, really well before the break, coming out of the break. They've been good. Finding a way to win that game I think was really important, especially when you look at what the schedule is coming up where they've got, I know Chicago and Detroit, not, not too, neither are, are good teams with tonight and Friday, but after that, you've got New York, You've got Boston. You've got Minnesota. You've got a really difficult schedule coming up, and I think that the Cavs needed to go into these two games that you should win feeling good about themselves, having a reason to feel good about themselves. Because let's say they beat Chicago by 15 tonight and Detroit by 10 on Friday or 15, whatever. It's not going to tell you anything about the Cavs. Like That is the expected outcome. Last night should have been a toss-up game. It was. It's an incredible way to win. You probably would have liked if they would have called that foul on Darius Garland. I could not believe that the last two-minute report today said they got that call right on the floor. I was astounded by that. You would have liked to have been, okay, we don't need a 59-foot buzzer beater, but it's a really It's 60 good foot. I thought it was 59. Yeah, I, I, people, revisionist history. Oh, okay. We're yeah. going to. Okay. Yeah, no, it's 60 feet. 59, why, what are we doing equivalent about a 59 foot? Because I think the record's actually 61, Deontay Grant. Well, yeah. okay, yeah, so yeah, you're not challenging the record if it, you just call it 60 feet. I, I, I don't know where we shorted this I've guy. I've not the foot. seen it written 60 feet anywhere. I, I, who got out the measuring stick? That's what I want to know. I didn't see anybody out there. I'm going to need to see that program. I'm going to need to see the coding of that program before I buy into it. That, that's a 60-foot shot to me. You want me to pull up the box score? No. Okay. You know why? Because you don't care. No, because I don't care. I'm right, <laughs> and, and all everything else is wrong. Like, you sound like me now. I, I think that's the I, okay. Then we're we're in simpatico. <laughs> Just Do like better. a Star Wars movie, we don't care. <laughs> Do better. <laughs> um, I think when we talk about where the Cavs are, I think it can be the the step forward. I think it I think it has to be if you want to be the two seed. 
But I think where we are is until we see, I think Donovan's legs are a little, I don't say, he just seems tired. Right. Well, um, and he was sick. Yeah. Well, but, but Darius is clearly struggling at the end of games, struggling at various points in the game. He's not himself. Until either or both of those things are righted, I am throwing style points out the window. Sure. And, just and win. I think that's fair. I would bet that Donovan's going to start to look like himself maybe this weekend, maybe early next week. Mm-hmm. You know, tonight we're the second night of a back-to-back. I don't know off the top of my head exactly how many minutes he played last night, but a heavy minute load going, having to travel, playing the second night of a back-to-back. I wouldn't exactly put in your parlay the Donovan Mitchell over. Now, I could be wrong about that because he's Get into really the good. Get lap right here. Right, I, and I don't know change. what his line is set at, but coming off of an illness and playing twice in two nights is a difficult thing. I would expect him to start to look more like Donovan Mitchell next week. And all this is crazy to say because he had, what, 31 points last night? Like, he was still really good. Well, I also think we're in this gray area of the season where it's not truly the runway for the playoffs yet. And so, listen, uh, the rea- here's, here are what I think are the non-negotiables for the Cavs. Okay. You need to get back to offensively pushing the pace and shooting the kind of threes that you were um, four weeks ago. You're not doing that right now. I don't need to see that for another two or three weeks. Because right now, I really do think this next, the next two to three weeks, you might even be able to push it to say four weeks. But that's, I mean, that's damn near the entire month of March. I'm okay with just winning. Sure. Style points do come back in at the end of March and in at the beginning of April before you get to the playoffs. Because at some point, you need to look like a team that has a style of play. And right now, they just don't. It's- See, with what this schedule is, style points are going to just – wins are going to be style points. If you beat Boston, doesn't matter what it looks yeah. like. That is a style point win. Mm-hmm. If you beat New York, considering the recent history between these two teams, and I know the Knicks are beat up, if you beat New York, it doesn't matter if you beat them by 5 or 15, that win is going to just – it's going to feel like it has style points. Same thing when Minnesota comes to town. I know that you know Cavs-Wolves doesn't ever sound like a big matchup, but – Wolves are first in the West. If you beat that team, doesn't matter if it's by one point, by ten points. Those wins do have style points, even if they don't look pretty. Well, and I think I so I I think it is. I agree with you to a point. I, I think at the end of the season, when you play um, Memphis and Indy and even the Clippers and Utah, some of those games I want to see the run that you had where whether it's with Donovan and Darius on the court at the same time or whether you're staggering their minutes better, which is, yeah, they're not doing well enough right now. JB's not doing well enough right now. Like, because this is the time where I think you can do that and you can shave some of those minutes off Donovan and maybe you can shave some of those minutes off Max Struess, who's averaging four more minutes per game than his career high in Miami last year. Um, maybe, I don't know, play a guy by like name the name of like Sam Merrill, something like that. I don't know. But he'd like, be the one to play. This is the time where you should be able to do that. Yeah, and so like I, I we're just in a, a interesting situation where. Listen, I think I, I think it's gonna be really tough for them not to be a top four seed. Oh, I can't imagine yeah. them falling to five. I, I they would have to have a catastrophic finish to the season to I think even fall four. Yeah. They but, I think they have because they I believe have a four or four and a half game lead on the Knicks right now mm-hmm. who the Knicks are in fourth place. 
it would take a lot to go wrong for them to finish outside of the top three, which then you avoid Boston in the second round, and you have a real opportunity to get to the conference finals. But I think at some point we got to see some semblance of the team that they were. For that not to have been a mirage that happened because Darius was out. And I think that is, uh, like, I, listen, I'm I'm not the guy here saying, well, Darius is bad this year. I think there are real reasons why Darius isn't the same Darius. Yeah. I don't think it's as simple as Darius and Donovan don't play well together because they, I mean, Darius was his most efficient self last year. So I and think Donovan was too. So I think, I think people are, are using this as an opportunity to create a narrative that isn't there. Do I think right now the pairing is holding both of them back? Yes, mostly because Darius isn't playing with confidence off ball. And it, so I think you start to look at that and you go, well, I think Donovan's trying to slow things down so Darius can get comfortable. I think Darius is trying to make sure he's not stepping on Donovan's toes. I think that's directly because of the situation Darius is in. Yes. I think Darius needs to be more willing to shoot, catch, and shoot threes. Like, yes. I think that is the thing that he, and then we can have a discussion about the big guys with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen a little bit, but that is the thing that to make this backcourt work, both of them have to be willing to take either catch and shoot threes or one dribble three. That's what it has to be because that's how you're going to keep this offense moving as quick as it was. They don't have to play at some breakneck pace where they're trying to emulate the seven seconds or less suns. That's yeah. not what they have to do, but they have to be very decisive when the basketball is in their hands. And yeah. that's the thing. I love what Darius Garland's game looks like when he's on. I think it is. It's beautiful basketball. Mm-hmm. But my one qualm with him at times is he can be a little – I don't want to say slow to decide things because so often he does make the right plays, but it can slow things down for other guys, even if the result is the same. And over time, I would just like for that to be a little bit quicker. I think that's when the Cavs can be at their best. And you really did see that when Donovan was the one running the show. And I I don't think Donovan playing point guard over an entire season like that is a super sustainable thing. His, His usage rate was a little too high. I think it would have, taken a toll on his body and you know it's fair to bring up when you always mention that these two might not be looking great right now Donovan had the best year of his career last year alongside Darius Garland Darius Garland was really good last year's numbers did not drop off very far from the all-star that he was the year before Donovan got here well but I I do think it's so funny because I agree but I didn't think they exploited the staggering of their guards enough last year. But I, I don't blame Darius or Donovan. Oh, no, no, no. It's that's, 100% that's on JB. That's a coaching thing. Well, and I think that is – so th- this, to me, becomes the, the catch-22 of the Cavaliers. Is It's like you can't have Darius making pretty brutal mistakes at the end of games when your head coach is not good at the end of the games. He's, he, he always burns his timeouts too early. I agree the, his, with that. His out-of-timeout actions are, are rough. Or non-existent, quite frankly, as we saw with the inbounds play that led to Dallas taking the lead with two seconds left. Yep. Um, his rotations late game are not great. You can't have Darius struggling the way he is in key moments and have JB not good in that moment. Right. You can't overcome both of those, especially in the playoffs. And I think that's where it's like, all right, getting back to that gray area thing, this is the time where you stagger him. Yes. This is the time where you see if it works. And this is a time where you go to Darius and say, listen, I'm still going to have you in at the end of some games. But right now, you're not playing confident basketball. I can't have you on the court in the final three minutes of the game in every single game. Well, what you should want to do if you were the Cavs, and 
you shouldn't try to emulate this team and anything other than this one specific thing, but try and be the 2019 Houston Rockets, the 2018 Houston Rockets, where, yeah, James Harden and Chris Paul started the game together, yep. and for the most part, they finished the game together, but it was very rare that those two shared the court. It, mm-hmm. it was like for maybe 15 minutes a game. That's what the Cavs should try and emulate in the backcourt and in the front court with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. You can you can create pairings. And we did, it was a little easier to do this when both Garland and Mobley were on minutes restrictions coming back from their respective injuries. But those two, it, there was one game in particular where they had a 28-minute limit or whatever. Mm-hmm. They both played like 28 minutes and 16 seconds. They only played with each other. And having that with Garland and Mobley, or if you want to, I think that's probably the better pairing. And then also Donovan Mitchell and Jarrett Allen, keep those two as pairs, separate them as much as possible, but also know that when that group is on the floor together, you're still at the very least going to be great defensively and you should have enough firepower offensively to get it done. Well, and I think it serves multiple purposes. It's not just about, to me, it's about getting, keeping both guys fresh and confident, right? So I think I think because both guys like to have the the ball in their hand, if you the first three quarters you avoid playing them for most of the first three quarters together, and even early fourth quarter, I think you're well, going to yeah. have them in rhythm as distributors, and that confidence I do think carries over, and all of a sudden each has ownership of hey I'm pairing you with these three other shooters and this big, and I just I don't know why it's taken this long. Because now I'm worried about Darius's confidence, and I don't think his confidence is snapping back unless you do something to help him and unless you go to him and be like, hey, here's the scenarios, but this is what we're going to do for you. Because I don't see him just playing his way out of confidence, Funk. If that's really becoming a bigger issue, then he lost some weight with his, uh, his, his jaw wired shut. And to be fair, I think that very much was an issue as well. What the Cavs have going for them is they've got time on their side. It's not as if they need to have this figured out tomorrow. The playoffs are still a couple of months away. They have time to figure this out, especially if they can hold on to that two seed. I I think it's very important to hold on to the two seed. If they do that, I feel almost as if you've got a first-round series to figure it out. It is is getting tense, though. You're right. They got time, but, oh, time is at that hourglass. If we are having this conversation, if we're – I don't expect everything to be solved in two weeks, but I think we should feel better about this in two weeks. It's not going to look perfect. On the March wind 15th. should start to look better, and and you know what I mean. Like some of these things, some of the clunkiness needs to start to at least slowly leak out there. And yesterday, I finally I'd been waiting three weeks to the day. Yesterday, Kyrie coming back to town gave me the chance to get into your take from February sixth on the morning show, where you said that. Donovan is already the second best, not the second greatest, and you did a great job. At- so you do you understand what I'm saying with that? Because Ken couldn't seem to quite get that. So I actually th- I want you to lay it out here in just one second. Okay. But I, so I yesterday I finally got into it. Okay. I'm going to play the Terry Pluto thing in a moment. But for, for people who didn't hear it, and I don't want to have to play you, the audio of you from three weeks ago when I have you right there, how do you, how do you kind of – separate greatest from best. So I think greatest is more of an overall resume type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like Kyrie is an NBA champion here. Kyrie had a lot of great years in his legacy. Greatest is a legacy thing. He has a greater legacy in this town 
than I think probably anyone other than LeBron James that has played basketball for the Cavaliers. Mm -hmm. You could maybe make an argument for Mark Price or Brad Doherty, someone like that. You could make that argument. But I think with what the shot he hit over Steph Curry on June 19th, 2016, the weight that that carries, I don't see anyone other than LeBron's legacy in this town as far as Cavalier basketball goes topping Kyrie Irving's. Mm -hmm. Now that said, I think Donovan Mitchell is better at basketball than Kyrie Irving or Mm -hmm. was here in Cleveland. And to this day, like I think right now, Donovan Mitchell is a better basketball player than Kyrie Irving is. So that really was my argument is that when I watched these guys and listen, watched just about every game Kyrie played in Cleveland. I've, I think I've seen every game Donovan Mitchell has played in Cleveland. Donovan is just better at basketball. I think than anyone other than LeBron James has been on this team. You could maybe make an argument for some guys that played for the Cavs and also played elsewhere throughout their career, but I think for what the the basketball player in Cleveland, the only guy better than Donovan has been LeBron. So I thought about this a lot, and and yesterday my point was if we get to who's the better basketball player, from a skill set standpoint, Kyrie has Donovan beat. He's a better handler. He's a better finisher at the rim. He's a better shooter. You could make the case he's a better scorer, even though Donovan has averaged more points per game here by, I think, a couple points per game than than Kyrie ever averaged here. So I think that's where I struggle. Do I think Donovan is the better teammate? Yes. Do oh, I think yeah. he's far more fan-friendly? 100%. You can tell me he's a better defender simply because I think Donovan cares about defense. He is a better defender. But, but, like, all those other things, like, that's where I – that's where I – Fall because it's like Donovan is not an elite finisher at the rim. Kyrie was. He's he's far more. Well, they're very different kind of finishers. That's like Donovan fair. is is far more explosive than Kyrie ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyrie is the best below the rim finisher I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. I've never seen someone that and Kyrie can dunk, but Kyrie can't like yeah Donovan really, dunk yes. Yeah. But for what he's able to do for a guy that can't consistently go up and dunk in traffic is I've never seen anything like it. I think his handles are second to none, but I think when you just take a look at the complete package of a basketball player, Donovan is better to me. But in what ways? I think that the explosiveness does matter because I think he's better at getting to the basket than Kyrie was. Not to say, and all of this isn't to say Kyrie wasn't awesome. Like, Mm -hmm. I absolutely loved watching Kyrie play basketball here. I still love- Backtracking, I I see. No, 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 because I'm still taking Donovan, but- it's not for me to say, oh, Kyrie, Kyrie's trash. Like, it's not where I'm. That's all I'm hearing I right don't now. Is you go effing there. hate Kyrie Irving. I just can't believe it. He was just in town. He said a nice thing about Cleveland. Why do you hate Cleveland, Danny? I oh, stop it. <laughs> I I think that the complete package. Because when you say, okay, Kyrie's a, a better shooter, it, it's a really close thing. I I don't know. He is. I I, mean, I think it's a really close thing because when you take a look at the mid range, Donovan, I do think is better there. The three-point volume now, and I understand part of this is the game has evolved. Like, the Cavs are shooting more three-pointers now than they were then. Just the NBA has changed in that sense. But I would take I would take Donovan, especially when you consider the fact, too, when Kyrie was the best player on the team, and I get that those teams weren't all that good, mm-hmm. he wasn't as good. And think, he didn't think, have the weight of being the best player on a playoff team, and I think that matters also, to me too. But you're also talking about a guy in the first three years of his career that played like seven games at Duke versus a guy that entered here as one of the top 15 players in the NBA. Right, and but so, that matters to this discussion. Well, but it, it does, but the point is Kyrie became a top 15 player 
from that last year without LeBron into those four years with LeBron, and we saw it in Boston. Like, young Tatum, young Brown, Kyrie was the best player on the court most nights. So, in a way, like, it it does end up feeling like we're shading Kyrie a little bit because he's a weird, wonky dude, and he's a bit of an a-hole, or has been, at points, a bit of an a-hole. Like, I... I, I don't. I don't think it's, one. I don't think it's a perfect one for one. So I understand no, yeah. it's going to be a little messy either way. But like by the end of Kyrie with LeBron, you can't tell me he wasn't every bit as good as Donovan because Donovan's never not been the guy on his team offensively. Sure. In Utah, he was the the guy from the moment he got there. He was the thirteenth pick in the draft well, in two thousand. I, I don't think that was something. planned, but the way that he yeah. he played. So I would put it this way. Last year, the Cavs, you know, we don't have to get into how great they were for the first time without LeBron. But Donovan was not at the top of that MVP discussion, obviously, but he finished sixth. He probably could have finished a little bit higher in that race. Kyrie never once was even mentioned as someone that deserved a vote. And part of that is playing with LeBron. We'll never know if he would have been there without LeBron, but we know Donovan Mitchell was a top five, top seven at worst player in basketball last year. I think you can make the same case for him this year. You could never say that about Kyrie here. I think if Donovan handled himself off the court the way Kyrie did, I don't think there's any way he's the the sixth most vote getter for MVP last year. I do. He was so, he was so awesome. I think Kyrie he has was been so awesome I think Kyrie has been penalized in terms of perception and including here in Cleveland from how he asked out, forced his way out, frankly, playing next to LeBron and then everything that's come after. And so it's 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 so funny. Like, I do think it's close. I think we get to the second best versus second greatest. If we went to the second best, one, I think we massively forget about Mark Price at his zenith. And Mark Price as a point guard in an era where point guards weren't dropping 25 points a game, I think Mark deserves a spot in this conversation. I think Brad Doherty deserves a, a place in this conversation. There are other guys that I think second best, by the way you defined, deserve more of of the conversation. But I do think in the end, I think a lot of this is influenced by the perception. Not, I'm not saying for you, but I think when people say Donovan's the second best, I think that's a little way of uh, uh, farting in the general direction of Kyrie Irving. So I think Mark Price has a real argument there because he, there might have been someone else before him, but. I believe he's the only person in Cavs history other than LeBron to be first-team All-NBA. I believe that to be the case. And Donovan wasn't last year. Donovan very narrowly missed out. I thought if I had a vote, I would have voted him first-team All-NBA. Mm-hmm. I thought that putting Luka Doncic on the first team despite his numbers when the fact that the Mavericks tanked at the end of the season to miss the play-in, he should have been penalized for that. And I thought that just how good Donovan was, he should have been first-team. But Mark Price that year finished like 10th in MVP. It was a very... It was a different NBA in terms of, you know, it was a sport dominated by the big guy. The I mean, wings were more important. It, Mark it Price in this era wins an MVP. I don't know if he wins one, but he's... And Steph won. Yeah, but Steph was a... Mark Price was an awesome shooter. Steph is better. Like, let's not... I, I don't want to say negative things here, but there's never been someone that has been better at shooting the basketball than Steph Curry. There hasn't been. And I don't know how close it is between him and number two. I don't think it's very close, though. I'm trying very hard not to engage in a, a verbal fisticuff with you over Mark Price. Be- I love because, Mark Price. Like, well, he- no, but I think I I think this is where the era thing does matter. Sure. And I think Mark was every bit the shooter that Steph is. 
He just played in an era where you got your ass knocked down on every other play. And that's so this it's not actually to discredit Steph at all. It is to say that if you let Mark Mark Price now we're really getting into the 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 nits and grits here. You're welcome. If you allow Mark to play in this era, I think his numbers look even more insane. I mean, and, they they would look better than what he had, no question about it. Like there's no doubt his numbers would be way better than what they were back in the 80s and 90s. Like, I think Mark Price is one of the five greatest shooters ever in NBA history. I can and that's in that. an era where he was an undersized point guard in, in a big league. I could I could absolutely listen to that. I'm not going to push back on that, but he's not Steph. He's not that level of shooter. Right, there let's, has, been, let's, let's, there let's, has been one of those ever. Let's find the, the common ground because of the era he played in. And I'm not trying to dog Steph. Steph in Mark Price era is Mark Price. Maybe. Actually, he's probably more SOL because he's a combo guard and he's not a true point guard like Mark was. Well, I mean, that position didn't exist back then. Yeah. Like, it's so difficult to make this this comparison between eras because basketball has changed so much. I just felt like you spit in my childhood's face when you said that about Mark Price. Sorry, I got a little defensive there. Um, the, I, just, I just continue to go back to the Kyrie thing. I do want to play the Terry Pluto thing in a second because he agrees with you. Mm-hmm. I think if I say, if we get to who is best, all right, Donovan's scoring a lot of points, but he never had to defer to somebody the way that Kyrie did at his peak in Cleveland. All right, when we get to the actual style, Donovan's a better teammate. He's team-friendlier or fan-friendlier. I'll give him he was a better defender. I'll give you he was more explosive, or he's more explosive athletically. Kyrie was smoother. Is smoother, just one of the smoothest players I've ever seen. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, had a better handle, better finisher, better shooter. Like, so it's it to me, it's like okay, yeah, I I care about defense. They're also undersized guards, right? Like they're they're also like so. If the only thing I can give you is you're more explosive, but he's the smoother player and better score. Like I that's see, I wouldn't call him the better scorer. Like like Donovan is an awesome scorer, man. He is. I think they're both. I think they're both elite. But I think sure, Kyrie. But I, I, I think I, I think Kyrie's underrated in a lot of different ways, just scoring wise. I, I think I would take Donovan as a better scorer, and I understand that the volume there matters. But Donovan is has been capable of some really special things scoring wise. Let's not forget Donovan had more forty point games last year than Kyrie did his entire time in Cleveland. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. We all agree that reducing carbon emissions is a good thing. And once again, Toyota is leading the way. We hear a lot about fully electric vehicles, and Toyota has them, with more coming in. But we also know a BEV is not for everyone, whether it's because of cost, range, or concern about finding a charging station when you need it. Plus, the raw materials used to manufacture batteries are limited. Enter Beyond Zero, Toyota's vision for a carbon-neutral future. 
in vehicles, and in manufacturing plants, too, in the years ahead. The materials used to make just one long-range battery for an EV could be used to make batteries for six plug-in hybrids or 90 gas-electric hybrids. That's why Toyota's position today is electrified diversified, empowering you to choose how to reduce your own carbon footprint with the vehicle that's right for you, a hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or battery EV. So shop, learn more, and get details at toyota.com slash beyond zero. Toyota, let's go places.